All right, folks, welcome back to the Roswell UFO Symposium. I am your co-host, Mike. Down in the bottom left, we have co-host Toby. And down on the bottom right, we have co-host Shane. Tonight, we are joined by our good friend, Daniel Allen Jones. Uh, he has been on Mind Escape a couple times. We thought we'd get him on here. Super knowledgeable when it comes to uh, the history of UFOs, and you know specifically the Aurora case and Roswell and all that kind of wonderful stuff. So we're going to be talking about that stuff tonight. Uh, please check out Daniel's YouTube channel, The Vortex. I have the link down below at the bottom. Uh, also his website. And, um, yeah, if you're going to any sort of UFO uh, or Bigfoot convention, Daniel's probably your guy. You've probably met him and, and don't even remember. That's a, that's a possibility. So, uh, Also, uh, if you would like to, please support our show. The Linktree link is down below. Um, leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify. We really appreciate that. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube live or Twitter, please check out our audio platform stuff. And if you're listening on Apple or Spotify or watching on Spotify, please check out our YouTube channel and our Twitter pages. I have all the links down below and we really appreciate all your, everybody's support. So, but, uh, without further ado, welcome back on the show, or I should say the Roswell UFO symposium, Daniel. Hey, Mike, Toby, Shane. It's great to be here with you guys. I really appreciate um, the opportunity. It's an honor to be here on the Roswell UFO Symposium podcast. Uh, and, you know, it's something that I've been looking forward to for a while. It's great to see this as a new um, part to play in the Roswell Daily Record, which is the newspaper through which the original stories of how we understand and know about Roswell really came into being. And I know that Toby's had a big part to play in that. And it's really cool to see you, Mike. And this capacity and Shane as well, and how we uh, have all come together through, you know, uh, Twitter and, and uh, UFO Twitter and all that. So um, I'm glad to be here with you guys. Thanks for having me. Of course. Welcome, man. I mean, you're, you literally are such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to this stuff. I mean, and, you know, the most important thing is anybody can research and read books and look at articles and do all that stuff, which we all love you to you know, doing as well, but you actually go to these sites, you take pictures, you meet people, you walk around, you really take in the history, which is like one of the main um, aspects of what you do that I love because it's not, again, just sitting at home reading a book. You're actually getting out there and getting your uh, feet dirty. Yeah, you know, uh, I appreciate you saying that. It's something that, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people are really interested in these things, maybe as like a surface level uh, casual enthusiast of, of UFO history and shows and things, but I think it's incredible to be able to get out and, um, as you say, meet some of the people, go to some of these sites and really explore the history of what this subject has to offer us. And a lot of that is thanks to my good friend, the late Jim Mars, who had a big part to play in my introduction to a lot of this and, um, you know, bringing me along to these events, introducing me to different people. And he is someone who, um, I think, you know, will always be recognized as, uh, you know, a, a pretty, uh, valuable aspect uh, in this whole journey of truth seeking and trying to make sense of some of the more challenging aspects, especially you know, when it comes to having integrity, when it comes to uh, investigative reporting and journalism, because not a lot of people are willing to put their reputation and their career on the line to try to get into some of the stuff. And uh, that's what we're all here to do is really try to make sense uh, to provide a better understanding for some of these really difficult parts of our history. Um, and when it comes to the subject of UFOs, a lot of people um, it's a lot better now, but as you know, a lot of people have laughed this subject off for a long time, and, and I think that there's a lot to it, and it helps us understand not just the levels of secrecy involved with military and government, but what this could mean for us, um, you know, technologically, scientifically, 
um, and in many ways how we can elevate our understanding of humanity altogether. Because if we're not the only ones here in the universe, um, which I think most people are pretty accepting of that notion by now, I mean, it could mean a lot that we bring that into society and say, hey, we're, we're not alone. Um, and maybe we've never been alone. And here are some of the bigger parts to our history that we haven't acknowledged before. And I think that's where a lot of people hope that we have disclosure for is that not just talking about this like we are. And I think that is important, but someone from the government coming out and saying, hey, this has been happening for a long time and we need to come clean. Um, that's the big idea. And I don't know that's ever going to happen that way, but it would be great to see someone um, try to you know make amends and saying that we've withheld this for a long time and it's, it's time we do away with that and come forward. And here are the ones that are real. Here are the ones that aren't real and, and maybe do what we can to make sense of it. So when it comes to Roswell, I think that there's probably um, you know more people ever uh, than ever now that recognize that as a household name. Um, maybe not really knowing the full history, but associate it with something about UFOs and aliens. And if you ever get to go to Roswell, and as Toby knows, um, the whole city is alien and UFO themed. It's got a lot of great places that you can stop in and, and check out some novelty stuff. And I think it's a it's a wonderful place, like a tourist destination. And, and whatever happened or didn't happen, that's kind of the theme that they go with. So it's great to see that it kind of helps to encourage that um, within the community and so while that's a big staple in ufology, my focus has also been on an area near where I live here in Texas on the legend of the Aurora crash of 1897, which we can get into as well, because there's a lot to the Aurora and Roswell cases that I think are very similar. And I always find that very interesting. So we can just kind of take it um, wherever you guys want to and uh, however we want to get into that. Well, since we're talking about Roswell, Daniel, you and I have almost crossed paths. I don't know how many times you've been at the events my company's held, the three years we've done it, um, obviously at UFO Festival in Roswell. I've been there every year. I'm sure we saw each other. We just never happened to talk. So it's kind of funny. We connected on UFO Twitter of all places. Uh, but yeah, Roswell, talk more about that. But the Aurora thing that you're doing, that's really fascinating. I know me and Mike and Shane, hope to actually come down there sometime next year and uh, have you give us a tour of like, you know, the crash site, the graveyard and just the town in general. Yeah, you know, and uh, I want to also give a shout out to Chase, uh, another good friend of ours and, and who's helping with the podcast as well. And he's down in um, you know, moderating the comments and, and everything there. So yeah, I want to just say that he's... Don't, no, don't, <laughs> don't give Chase it. No, what are you doing, dude? No, I'm just kidding. He's shout pretty close by, okay. so... If we do have an, uh, ever have an opportunity to all get together, he's not too far away. It would be cool to have us all um, have a meetup and, you know, get to really explore the, um, the, the sites and the history of Aurora, too. And uh, so I just wanted to mention that. But, uh, yeah, you're right. You know, it's, it's incredible to consider, like, the, um, the closeness of our paths having crossed before. Toby, um, there at the events, I've been to the, uh, the Roswell incident event a number of years, uh, including this last uh, summer, you know, with the 75th anniversary. And we can get more into that as well, which is really cool. Because not only is this year the 75th anniversary of the Roswell incident, but it's also the 125th anniversary of the Aurora legend as well. And the reason I refer to it as a legend is because I think that there are a lot of interesting aspects to show that uh, from the people I've talked to, the historical records that, that are available, um, that not only is this something that a lot of people think is possibly the smoking gun uh, of UFOs, as Jim Mars would say, but also... And other views, just a simple hoax. And I think that's one of the fun things that we see is that, you know, either way, as we can see in Roswell, whatever did happen, 
we know that the city likes to celebrate it through um, a fun theme like UFOs and aliens. And that helps to, I think, encourage the possibility that maybe there are things out there. So whether the Aurora case happened or not, it can at least give us a notion that, you know, some of these things have been going on for well over a century. And it makes us think that, you know, it's not just a recent phenomenon. It's something that goes back into antiquity, perhaps. And I'd like to think that there is something to the Aurora case, but, you know, there are many contending sides. So what I've done is gone through and tried to figure out what the best available information about the Aurora case is. And so going all the way back, you know, it's hard to find some of the information from the time that it happened until about the late 60s. And what's helpful is knowing that Roswell did happen in the late 40s. And with that coming into, uh, you know, the, the, I guess you could say a little bit more of the modern uh, ideas of the subject, it's bringing in, into the picture a lot of the more ancient cases, um, or better yet, just uh, pre-aviation cases like the Great Airship Mystery. Um, and so I can kind of give a little bit of an overview about the, the legend in general, because it's something that I think most people probably have an idea about, but it is something that, you know, for what I like to remember is that there are people who just don't know and they, they're learning. And I remember being in a situation like that too. So it's cool to also go back and kind of reiterate some of these ideas. So I'll, before I really get into it, and we've talked about it, we've brought it up on Twitter spaces before, um, I just want to maybe toss it around the room here and, and ask you guys each where maybe, if you can recall, where you first heard of or if there's something that caught your attention about the Aurora case um, for you to have originally come across it. Did you hear about it on a show? Was it something you saw um, you know, on, on TV or maybe from a book or something? Where did you guys first hear about it? I think for me, it probably was a book. I don't, I can't think of the title right off the top of my head. I mean, being in Roswell, I spent a lot of time as a kid down at the UFO Museum and Research Center, just pouring over books, talking to researchers that were coming in. Um, but that, that's probably the first time I heard about it was in a book. And then um, I think I sent you the photo. We have some microfish at the newspaper from 1897 and, uh, when you come down, we're going to go through that and we'll see if the newspaper actually reported on it. Cause I think that'd be a cool connection. Hey, they reported on Aurora first and then, you know what I mean? Then the Roswell incident, but that that's my first time I heard about it was in a book for sure. Shane. I think it was UFO hunters. Maybe what a discovery show. Like I think it was UFO hunters. I think exactly where it was. So what's up, Daniel? I'm glad you're here. Actually, you're one of my favorite people. Yeah. In spaces, just man, the stuff you talk. I mean, I could I could pick your brain all day, ask you questions about you. In my opinion, you're living the dream out there, chasing sasquatches and stuff. Here, you need to come up to Washington. We'll chase some sasquatch. Yeah, man, I'll definitely have to come back out there, and uh, we'll spend some time. Uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. And you are right on there with um, UFO hunters because that was a big way that people in recent times found out about it because. They did go out there and we can get into that because I was going to um, uh, mention that as well. So, yeah. And what about you, Mike? Yeah. I mean, I definitely had seen it. Um, I'm trying to think there was something on the History Channel. It wasn't Ancient Aliens. It was like another, like, they, sometimes they do these, like, specials where it's just like a conglomeration of, like, famous cases or whatever. And they were going through, like, the history. I want to say this was probably seven years ago maybe so yeah like seven years ago i probably i think i first heard about it 
I cool. see a screen yeah, down in the comments. Dan, you're the manual. Sorry. <laughs> called you that, so. I think we should actually name, oh, rename yeah. the Encyclopedia Encyclopedia Bredanica. You got to change your name of your uh, <laughs> YouTube channel. We'll, we'll figure something out. We'll gotta, work on it. You got to change the name of your YouTube channel from the Vortex to Daniel's Manual. <laughs> all fringe oh, man. stuff. <laughs> that's pretty clever. I should have thought about that. Um, yeah, man. Uh, that's cool. Great to see a screen on here. And yeah, it looks like Chase is saying that he also heard about it on the History Channel. And that's right. So History Channel uh, is where the UFO Hunters was um, was broadcast as well as Ancient Aliens, which also featured it. And so it's really cool to see how maybe, um, you know, people can say whatever they want and critique those shows, but it is a big part about how people learn about some of the history and the cases. So that's awesome. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's one of those things that people, what I've found is people hear about the legend in different ways. They hear about the windmill, the well, the, the grave site, um, things like that, but maybe just pieces of the story They say, oh yeah, it's that one where they, you know, it crashed or they buried it. So there are different aspects of the case, which I think make it a valuable um, story. And again, legend overall, because it has all the main ingredients of what ufologists would hope to find today. Um, and it wasn't just a sighting. It, it was a, you know, an object that had crashed. And it wasn't just that it had crashed, but there was debris scattered everywhere. You know, this, this idea of this like silvery aluminum metal, um, not just an object, but there were occupants, at least one. Um, so it's not just that we had a physical craft or object, but you have the occupant and the remains of it, the body were recovered. And not only that, you have what it says is our papers with writing. So you've got all these really incredible things that would, I think, make for probably a breakthrough uh, in science and, and like a big, uh, you know, rewrite in history for us. If this really did happen, I think that would be an incredible um, part to play in our understanding of what's possible. For those who aren't familiar, essentially, um, as reported here, and I'll try to be mindful of my movements here with my mic, um, I'll show you guys a really cool printout that I have of the original Dallas Morning News, page five, where there are over a dozen airship stories right here. But this one that's highlighted, as you can see right here in the middle, this isn't even the front page, the Dallas Morning News, April 19th, 1897. This middle article reports that two days earlier on the 17th, about 6 a.m., the early risers of Aurora basically awoke to this explosion where an ob object came crashing down from the south, headed north, crashing into Judge J.S. Proctor's windmill. And a lot of people don't know this. He wasn't a real judge. That was his nickname. And it exploded and destroyed and ruined his flower garden. Uh, the debris was gathered up threw down the well because the windmill was connected to a well water tower and so it you know messed all of that up and the remains of an occupant which was considered to be the only person on board the pilot they basically found that whatever the remains were um, as the article here says uh, enough of the remains were, were gathered even though that it was badly disfigured that they determined that it was quote not an inhabitant of the this world um, and so that's pretty sensational for a, you know, a, a newspaper, a reputable newspaper to report on. So they gathered up the remains and also reported in the nearby Fort Worth register that they held a funeral um, and gave the pilot a burial with Christian rites the next morning. And uh, many of the townsfolk gathered and Aurora 
to put things into perspective, um, unfortunately had uh, been bypassed by the railroad and continued on down into Fort Worth. Um, Aurora is just northwest of Fort Worth, which is nearby the Dallas area, 20 minutes or so. And uh, they really needed the railroad to come through. But since it did not, a lot of the town um, left uh, and people pretty much considered it to be a ghost town at that point. There were a bunch of saloons. It was kind of up a kind of place, uh, but they also had a, a yellow, a spotted fever um, and it was really bad. And unfortunately, a lot of people died and so some people considered that this whole story was concocted to help drive tourism back into the town, but that never really took place, I think, in the way that people had hoped. Uh, and so, again, as the original story is reported here in the Dallas Morning News, that on April 17th of 1897, something crashed. And it's not only that that was the only story like this, all of these other stories, as you can see, even around here on just the fifth page of the newspaper, were all airship stories. Yeah, this is the only up, one I think uh, that really talks about this, though. John Keel's Operation uh, Trojan Horse. He has like a whole section in there devoted to all the airship sightings uh, in the late 1800s. Um, have you have, have you read that book, Daniel? Yeah, and I think that it's really interesting to see that, and I know Shane will appreciate this as well. That Keel, along with other people, were really open to the possibility that some phenomena, um, these different types of phenomena appear different ways right and you can see that the airships might have been tangible craft put together by some kind of inventors or they could have been the uh, interesting and elusive phenomenon appearing to the people in a way that was conceivable at the time and and keel talks about this uh jacques Vallée talks about this is this idea that the phenomenon appears to people um throughout time through their own cultural lens of perception and this is called cultural tracking my good buddy jim mars talked about this as well and i want to make a mention that he's a big reason why people know about this case also um he came out with this really cool book here if i can grab it all right yeah i was just shocked at in in operation trojan horse how many airship sightings there was from the midwest specifically too i thought that that was really interesting well, you know, it's one of those things where people had considered that there were inventors who were coming up with these craft and, uh, you know, we're, and we're not telling anybody. And, and uh, I think that maybe something like that may have been happening. There's some really cool ideas of um, these different, uh, what were called arrows being developed well before our modern aviation, uh, you know, with the idea of the Wright brothers, which didn't happen, at least as far as Aurora was concerned. In 1897, it, there were several airships, even the year prior in 96. It wasn't until... 1903 that you have the Wright brothers coming up with the flyer at Kitty Hawk. And so this is all done pre-aviation. And so if people were seeing anything, um, it was at a time where there really shouldn't have been, but we know that there were blimps or dirigibles. Um, we know that some of these things were probably in use, but at the same time, I don't know that it can, can account for all of them. I just wanted to mention that uh, this is a really, I think, great foundational book, um, a good primer in the whole idea of what's going on in the sense of, like you said, what Keel is proposing, what Valet might have been proposing. Jim's book, Alien Agenda, does address not only the airships, um, but specifically the Aurora case. Talks about Roswell in here as well. This book actually it's was a trippy uh, cover. in 97. Yeah. <laughs> the cover keeps going. See. Like Every time you like shift the way, it like, kind of has like a, like a holographic look to it. Alien Agenda. This is one of the um, highly coveted, 
hardback editions. But, um, you know, Jim really was interested in a lot of the UFO phenomenon stories. And so I think it's really cool to see like his interest um, and willingness to be open to those possibilities that, like you said, Keel put forward in um, Operation Trojan Horse. Um, he wrote a book called The Eighth Tower as well um, as The Mothman Prophecies, which he does talk about a little bit of the airship stories and uh, even in that as well, um, which is pretty cool. Um, so I think that there is something to the great airship mystery um, of 1896 and 97, but they, they go even earlier than that. And I think that one of the incredible things is that you see this pattern emerge of people describing meteorological phenomena that we probably now can say it's like, okay, that's pretty interesting weather stuff going on. But I don't think it accounts for like the total sum of all airships prior to um, the whole flying saucer craze of uh, the 40s and 50s and, and later on. Um, so what I would say is interesting about the initial story, again, is it, it tells about the crash of an object. So it wasn't just that in the other airship stories, they saw something. They see some kind of apparatus with wings or with portholes or with people up there like singing really interesting stuff but they actually see the object come down and crash and it explodes there's debris everywhere the remains of the pilot which you know could have been one of a few if not maybe the only occupant aboard um, had papers it also talks about how the the um the army signal services officer um was a authority on astronomy and it was his assumption that this pilot was an inhabitant of the planet Mars and that these papers were writings of his travels and were in some strange hieroglyphic form, like pictographs that no one could be, uh, no one could decipher. So that's, I think, one of the, the aspects of the story, which people kind of raise the eyebrow and think, well, if you aren't, if you weren't uh, sure already, this probably does it, you know, for you pretty good that like, this is a pretty silly story if you look at it, because it seems like it doesn't really make a lot of sense for there to be this Martian with paper, with hieroglyphics. I mean, it sounds amazing, but it's hard for some people to really take seriously at that point. If this all did happen, just on the basis of what the report says, um, again, it has all the main ingredients of what ufologists are searching for by way of hard physical evidence of a craft, um, you know, biological remains or a, a type specimen of a body, um, you know, several witnesses. Uh, the writings of this creature or, you know, extraterrestrial language, I think that's amazing. And the idea that it's uh, still tangible, that you could still maybe go see what's there today uh, or, you know, the remains of the metal that have been examined over the years. So from this time on until probably about the 40s, there's not really a whole lot that's really known. There's a little bit here and there. I've really gone to, into a deep dive about what's happened in Aurora with the history um, and many of the, the histories that do get into Wise County, which is where Aurora is based here in Texas, don't really have um, a lot to say about it. And that's why it's not re really regarded very seriously, because people think if historians thought enough of the story to keep it um, intact and to report and write on it, they probably would have included it in the, the chronologies and the histories of Wise County. And they didn't. There are at least two uh, histories, pioneer histories of the area, which talk about settlements and things. And again, Aurora was a really big town, but once the railroad bypassed it, it became a ghost town and virtually no one was left. So people think that maybe this story was an attempt to bring people back, um, but that didn't really happen in the way that maybe one might hope. It's also a little bit weird to come up with a, a story like this, rather than say we struck gold or better yet as Texas, we struck oil, you know, and that would really bring business in. But the interesting thing is that people don't realize 
it was just a year later that Wells' War of the Worlds came out. And then pretty much like 40 years or so after that, it was broadcast in the 30s over the um, radio. And again, before like TV was widely available, it was a sensation. Uh, people were going crazy. They were losing their mind thinking this is like a real invasion. So science fiction was on the precipice of even coming into people's minds and it wasn't really like widely known. Um, there are ideas that maybe the person who wrote the story, who his name is S.E. Hayden, um, was a stringer uh, or a ringer for the, the paper and was like writing articles. And so wanted to come up with something and just used um, possible other ideas to really put this idea of the story together. And I think that maybe that could conflate things together. It's kind of challenging to see, but it's not impossible. But I like to be open that maybe something did happen. Uh, but it wasn't until the 40s a new family moved onto the property and it was the Oates family and they didn't really know about this whole idea of a crash or anything. And I should say as well that the gravesite and the cemetery, it's a Masonic cemetery. And from what I understand, there was a whole movement of a cemetery from one location in, in the town to another. And a lot of the, the bodies were dug up uh, and exhumed to be, to be brought to this new cemetery. And there's even claims that from people that I've talked to that knew someone and people involved with the um, the clergy to to the effect that they were helping move the bodies, they say, oh, we never moved any aliens. So there's that weighing against the idea that maybe there was an alien body. But I will say this is that the cemetery where it is now is only not even a mile away from where the crash site is. It's now in a place that we can think of um, Highway 114 in Texas. And so it's Pretty close by it's accessible even today so the the cemetery is masonic um, it's also like a civil war cemetery and so these some of the graves go back into the 1860s they're very old and so there's a tree where the grave site is now a lot of people think that it's been lost forever but one thing we do know and thanks to my buddy jen that there was an original gravestone a headstone that was put into place and um, it's supposedly the one to mark where this occupant this pilot was buried and uh up until about the 40s this new family moved onto the property the oates family um and brawley oates who was the patriarch of the family uh wanted to use that well for drinking and for everything else there on their homestead and so basically they took out all the debris and used the well and they had people coming on their property trying to look at the location and ask about the whole crash. And they sort of inadvertently found out about the whole thing that way from people coming onto their property. So from that point on in the forties, moving onward, they had started using that well on a regular basis. Um, it was just a way of life back then. And uh, so that's kind of one of the main gaps in what's known historically about the Aurora case or how it might've been uh, uh, perpetrated in other publications or anything up until about the um, late 60s. And I'll just say because I think the notoriety that we see soon after when that family moved onto the property, you have the uh, infamous Roswell event happen in July of 47, right after uh, Kenneth Arnold sees these crescent-shaped objects up there where, uh, where closer where Shane is um, over Mount Rainier in Washington. And the media kind of spun his statement out, uh, uh, you know, into this idea of what we call flying saucers, because Kenneth Arnold talked about seeing crescent-shaped objects that moved like saucers. 
And so the media said, oh, well, you saw flying saucers and that's what they ran with. And that's where we get the terminology today. So unfortunately, it's just one of those things where it's like the telephone game. Um, and so now, years later, um, people look back and we think uh, people just started seeing these saucer shaped things. And maybe some are, but that's one of the interesting things about the whole Roswell incident is the, um, the orientation the form, the morphology of this object that supposedly crashed a few um, hours outside of Roswell um, in a place called Corona might not have been a disc. Um, it might have been some other shaped object. And that's kind of one of the interesting queries put forth by many of the different veteran researchers who've been there. And I know Toby's familiar with this as well. And it's something that, you know, people wonder about because we go, we get the iconography. And if you look at my shirt here, this is the modern logo for the, the city of Aurora. They even used the flying saucer motif, which again, the original story talks about a large metallic cigar shaped object. It doesn't talk about a, a disc, you know, so this is just more recognizable. And the windmill, the iconography of a windmill is no is um, more recognizable than a derrick or like a tower that probably would have been more historically accurate. So it's just one of those things where we go in now to try to make sense of where these things actually happened and what we can do to recognize them in today's uh, perspective. Yeah, and that's right. interesting. I want to kind of circle back to a few uh, points. Mike, you're you horrible, earlier. dude. Um, Daniel, I'm glad you're here. I got a question for you. You brought Kill earlier. Sorry, he had me laughing. What's wrong with this guy's eyes? Kill earlier, dude. I think he's turning into I'm the sorry. Mothman, dude. I could. I was trying not to lose it on camera, <laughs> man. That's your fault. Anyway, uh, you mentioned Keel earlier. One of my favorite cases is the Space Pancakes case with the uh, dirigible, whatever you want to call it. And what you you've got? You probably remember what year it was and what the name of the case was. Can you tell everybody about that? Stop laughing at me, dude. I lose it. Well, um, yeah, well, I know that there's a lot of different uh, ideas of like when people see the airships, um, that was kind of the term that was used. And, and we see these ideas of like the pancakes or any of these other things, like even in Texas, there was a, um, a case where uh, in Dallas, there was a guy who saw something that he saw, uh, he said looked like a large saucer plate. And that was in 1878. And so that's actually one of the first term of like saucer comes from uh, when in regards to like the form of the craft, um, the pancakes one and many of these other ones where they're just a um, strange shaped blimp or, or boat like objects uh, with wings and things uh, go all the way through the, the 1880s, 1890s, um, early 1900s, uh, even into the, the teen, uh, like into the twenties, the, the 1920s people were still seeing. And at that point we did have a lot more, airships um, going on. Uh, the pancake one, um, it sounds really interesting. I honestly would have to go back and, and kind of check some references. But yeah, if you um, if you know anything more about that one, I'd be glad to hear what your thoughts are on that one, Shane. And I know you're, you're a fan of uh, Keel as well. And um, it was good to see like him and Charles Fort, people sometimes they, they say Fortian uh, literature and things. Charles Fort was really into trying to make sense of some of these early airships too. And so you can see a lot of the, the things that Charles Ford talked about um, kind of helped to bridge that gap between ancient um, ideas of the occult and esotericism with modern ufology as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm, o I'm only into space bacon, but, you know. We can space, tell. Space, yeah, space pancakes Wait, suck, bro. 
Uh, oh, so space baby. Uh, yeah. Never mind, bro. Moving on. Um, okay, so I actually wanted to ask you this, Daniel. So how do you parse this whole thing out? So like, it's one thing when we're talking about seeing stuff in the sky. So people saw something as part of this aurora, right? Like multiple. I mean, how many people would you say saw something in the sky for the the aurora crash? That's a good question. Um, and I would say that there's really no way that anyone could ever know. Um, the, the problem is, is that it really gets down to the basis of um, knowing how we, anyone knows about the story at all. And it's because of a few people, I think, who originally um, took the time to write it down. And there was this whole idea that Aurora itself had its own newspaper, which the story was written in, and then relayed to the larger publications like the, the Dallas Morning News and Fort Worth Register. The person who wrote the article here, like what I just showed, was S.E. Hayden, who was a resident there in Aurora. I would say that based upon the numbers there at the time, it might have been a dozen people, you know, two dozen people. Uh, it's not like this was a really big city. And so I would say that we do know of a few people who have come forward who have said that they, they were there when it happened, that they were kids uh, or just, you know, children throughout that time and then later on way later in life were interviewed about it and some people said yes it happened no it didn't happen um, and it really comes down to who you um, really believe in or whose side you take uh, or if you subscribe to the idea of it happening at all one man for instance uh, Charlie Stevens says that he was living down um, in an area that was a little bit away from it and saw he was working out with his father in the fields and they saw the object going down and uh, knew that it, it went down and exploded. And he asked his father if he could go and, and check it out. He said, no, son, we have to finish the chores. Um, Jim actually got to meet and talk with Stevens and interview him about it. And he says that, yes, it happened. Um, and, and so uh, the next day, apparently his father went into town and to see what the calamity was and said that it was just a big mess, a big wreck of something. Um, something you would use the exploded. word calamity there, wouldn't you? <laughs> um, from Texas, right? So, but but my whole thing is, and I think you'll know where I'm going with this because you get mad at me about this with the Bigfoot stuff too. But <laughs> um, so we don't know, obviously, like nuts and bolts, idealistic, maybe it's a product of the mind kind of a thing. Uh, not that mi- that doesn't mean that it couldn't pop into this reality, but just that, like, I guess for me, when I'm reading the, you know operation trojan horse or whatever you know anything having to do with airships or you know these ancient or more older sightings i start to think like you were talking about how um it's kind of whatever the cultural it's like a reflection of the cultural knowledge of whatever could be in the air at that time right so airships could have been like blimps or people's inventions or things like that but i guess my question would be so we're doing that now uh, with UFOs. Could that be? Could this be us um, projecting our future in some sort of symbol or symbolism, kind of like a Jungian thing happening? Meaning that, like, when you're seeing airships, you're, you blimps and things are going to be in the future, just like maybe we're seeing UFOs. Maybe that will be what we use to fly or navigate the stars in the future. Could that be something like that? Do you think, or do you think it's strictly a physical or non-physical thing? Yeah, I think that the, it could very well both be at play and in different ways. My challenge to that is, is I really like that idea that we as a collective have a powerful enough um, 
group perception to enable that type of manifestation to take place. The, the challenge though, I think, is that if we don't have that happening on a more consistent basis with uh, different things, but maybe only when people see something in the sky, it makes me wonder how often that really takes place and maybe in other ways, if it is at all. I tend to think that it does. It's just a challenge for us where um, we, we tend to try to make sense of what we see up in the sky versus what's all around us, maybe all the time. And that could be very well what we're dealing with uh, in a sense of some of these other encounters that people have too. But I would say that this de definitely seems to be uh, a physical um, or there definitely seems to be at least some type of physicality to many of these reports because some of them talk about um, these objects were on the ground uh, the crew was out there working on these. They would be uh, approached by some of the, the people, like the captain, who would ask for parts, who they would be given. Um, and in exchange for something, they would be out there singing. Um, they would tell them how they were going to go bomb uh, Havana. They would say, tell them how they were from the North Pole. Um, they would have strange clothing. Some of them were small stature. Um, some of them were in like small uniforms. Um, and some people even here in Texas, many of them actually uh, talk about how there were ropes that would come down, uh, that there was an anchor left behind. Um, so all of these seem to kind of give me the impression this was like a physical uh, object. But I don't think that many of, of the you know airships that are around uh, were around back then may still be somewhere today that we can just go and find. I mean, that would be incredible for us to find something to the effect of like an ancient airship. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I that guess would what I'm be saying really is like cool. I'm not doubting that there's a physical thing, but I think what I'm saying is that maybe our consciousness or mind versus matter, like mind, I think might be more important in terms of the reality that we know when it comes to this stuff. Like, I'm not saying we can't manifest things like you see something, oh, I think I'm going to see a UFO and then a UFO pops up and then, oh, the UFO crashes and there's a physical UFO, anything like that. But maybe there's just infinite possibilities and then when we latch on to something that maybe that brings it more into the realm of reality or creation meaning our perception of something is what makes it real as opposed to it already being there aside from our consciousness or do you think i'll postulate that perhaps it's every bit of a control system these things that they're showing us or there's a reason they're showing us and maybe this is a slight bit of manipulation just like the crashes, I don't think are intentional. I mean, I think they're intentional. And I think it's all just kind of theater. Like Kill postulates, it's so wild. Or Valet even talks about the control system. It just seems like it's, they show us things. And then who's to say when we don't see these things, airships, things like that. It doesn't take, you know, put two and two together before we're walking down a line that we wouldn't walk down before. Yeah, I mean, I really do think that uh, that does come into play with a greater aspect of the this the many different types of phenomena we experience in general. Um, and I think even Valet talks about the Kabuki theater and this, the, the control system. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of that actually. And I think that it, it's something that does um, affect our perception and enables us to have a, a maybe a greater comprehension of reality. Um, and I do think that that does affect our understanding of what's possible. And, and again, in our own collective nature, um, what to me is odd about the, the flap, um, or this rash of sightings is that it was all very heavily concentrated in these two years. Um, and so I think something was happening and whether there was something to, you know, working toward being a catalyst 
to shift um, our you know collective consciousness, or if there was just a, there were people in uh, in addition to that actually enacting upon these ideas of inventions and bringing them to fruition, and then suddenly you have got many of these ships being sighted all throughout the states, um, and then suddenly nothing for years. Uh, it's really odd. And so it makes us wonder, like, what's really going on? Because I do think that that idea, again, of the control system of, of consciousness and how our ability to manifest things has played a role in the sightings and encounters that people have had. Um, and I do think that in some way that these people who have, uh, you know, been involved with these potential groups like the Sonoro uh, Aero Club or NIMSA, um, which has been looked at in many different ways, the schematics of uh, a man named Charles Delchow, which showed these airships well before the Wright brothers. Um, something was going on, and I don't know that it, it's all one thing. And I think that even today, now, um, and throughout the last several decades, that I don't think the UFO phenomenon has always ever just been one thing. Um, I think there's a lot more to it. And if we look back, it uh, is preceded by all of these other ideas of the flying shields, um, the fiery chariots. Um, all of these things in the ancient record that we see may have been interpreted or maybe misinterpreted or just uh, as uh, they had seen at the time, shown to have something to the effect of what would have been, as you said, kind of relevant to the culture. And again, that's cultural tracking. And Valet talked about a lot about that as well. Um, so I do think that could be something to Daniel. it. The challenge now is that um, with what little we have left of these airships outside of stories and no living witnesses, we're left to try to make sense of what's still around um, today. Do you include uh, misinterpretations, uh, things in the Bible? Perhaps those are experiences, the Ezekiel's wheel, burning bush, things like that. Well, I do think that if we look at some of the religious texts, biblical literature um, from around the world, we do see, I think, things that seem to stand out that would like appear to us as a kind of exotic inclusion um, or as sort of a divine device of sorts um, in the eyes of archaic man and our ancestors trying to make sense of what they were perceiving, like through either visions or in a very physical waking state. And it could be like some people have considered Ezekiel's wheel was a UFO, or it could have been a visionary experience or you know, the idea that uh, it's something that maybe we haven't really got a good grasp on still now. And I think that maybe some of these stories that we see in these different ancient texts could reveal to us the nature of some of the interactions between some form of agency, some form of advanced agency, whether we call them angels, um, gods, angels, aliens, devils, demons, uh, devas, any of these ideas, I think are really interesting to consider that they're just non-human. Uh, there's something else going on. And whatever we do to perceive them, um, we just have to try to use our own language at the time. And maybe in that, in that time frame, that was the best language known to use to try to describe what people were seeing. And so now in the 1800s, we don't know what planes really are yet. We don't really know anything about jets, um, spaceships. You know, we can conceive of that stuff here and there. I mean, people were learning about Mars and there's the whole great uh, moon hoax of the 1800s. And, uh, you know, those ideas really, it's not that they were non-existent. It's just that it's one of the, the curiosities I think we have as people always searching and looking up into the stars, looking into the heavens, wondering about others, 
other places, other worlds, um, that's always been with us. And I think that people discount that. They think that it's only a, a modern idea of science fiction, when in reality, we were thinking about otherworldly beings for the probably better part of the last two centuries. Um, historically speaking, that's documented. Uh, we, the idea of extraterrestrials is not new. Um, it's just something that people don't realize that, that even the trope, and this is also- Giordano uh, Bruno, late 1500s, I believe. I mean, that's where you get infinite, you know, planets and infinite possibilities of life, at least that idea. Right. And looking into this being that um, in the Aurora case, the one of the townsfolk described the occupant and the pilot as a Martian. Um, it makes you wonder, OK, so people were thinking about Martians. They were thinking about these ideas. And so I looked into the trope Little Green Men, did a deep dive on that. And a lot of people associate it with different things. But um, in reality, the earliest documentation we have of that in association with extraterrestrials isn't until about 1907. Um, and so from that point on, Little Green Men started becoming largely associated with extraterrestrials. But it wasn't that it was new even then. It was just relegated to the Fae and uh, esoteric ideas um, and cultural things. So Little Green Men was around. It had more to do with like goblins and Fae and things like that, the fairy realm. But after the change, again, in the psyche, the social concept that we had at the time, shifting more to the, um, you know, the heavens and, and ET and things like this, we started using it to associate those ideas with how we shifted our language and, and uh, you know, cultural perception. So that to me is a big part about how we understand anything. That's why I'm fascinated in cultural anthropology and physical anthropology. So I think that there is a lot to how these ideas come into play in language and, and culture. So that is fascinating to me because even today, um, you know, the, the trope, the little green men, still is at play um and as toby knows and in roswell there are tons of little green men statues everywhere i mean it's it's a yeah. fun thing for green name actually mentioned absinthe in the comments and i thought that that was um kind of an interesting point too because i don't know if anybody in here has done absinthe but i've done real absinthe with wormwood in it from europe my one buddy's brother brought it home when we were in college and yeah it's definitely got psychedelic uh effects to it so um I know that that's where some of that stuff comes from, at least, and in altered states in general. But I just wanted to throw that in there. Definitely, and you know, as we've discussed on on other shows and and Mind Escape, um, I'm a proponent of psychedelic experiences. I consider myself a psychonaut, and do think that that is interesting. Consider how that plays into all of this as well. Um, but I do think that there were some people who, uh, you know, despite maybe even visionary experiences have seen things without any kind of alteration of perception um, and just try to do the best they can to try to identify what it is or leave the best notes and recording that they can at the time using the language that they have accessible. Have you seen anything um, in day-to-day uh, -day consciousness, like non-altered states? He's seen you. <laughs> I've seen a few interesting things. I would say that I always make this claim that, you know, I've had my own interesting and weird experiences in both uh, aspects of reality. I mean, but I would say that's never been anything I've tried to make a stand on, like as a springboard into any of this stuff. Um, it, it drives my curiosity to learn. Um, it, it's inspiring. Uh, and I think that it's not really um, 
to me, something that I feel like if I ever made an attempt to try to explain to anyone, it wouldn't have the same effect for them that it did for me. And I think that that's kind of the whole point is that it was for me to experience maybe, um, and then even if I wanted to share it with someone else, and even if they thought that they understood it, it, it might really not make much sense. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how I see it. I wanted I to touch down on a couple things. Go ahead, hey, Space pancakes, calm down. <laughs> a few points you made earlier. The sensationalism in news reporting back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, I know in my diving through the archives, it was rife with headlines about giant skeletons, monsters. Um, we do know a lot of that's been drummed up by tourism, just sensationalism, try and get the newspaper industry moving, sell papers. But it sounds like you feel as far as it relates to Aurora, that's not really the case here. Am I understanding that right? I can see both things. I think it's just weird that in the event that it was all real as it was reported that it was never uh, picked back up. You know, it was never repeated and um, not anything until like much later on. And so I think that I can understand the effectiveness of selling tabloid newspapers to try to make money. Um, we know that that's, that happens uh, even today, you know, um, sensational headlines sell, uh, sell and they, they get attention. But I would say that the odd part is, is if this all happened as it was originally reported by Hayden, um, why it wasn't included in any of the pioneer histories or the local histories um, soon after, into the early 1900s and 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, it's almost like it never happened. Um, and it may not have ever happened. I don't know. It's, uh, it's really curious. I think that there are a lot of people who just outright think, no, it's a hoax. And I like to hear that because I like to see what would the best information to, um, you know, show, show or share that it didn't happen versus that I'm only looking for things to help build the idea that it did. Um, because to me, that's confirmation bias. And as a reporter, I want to stay objective in my reporting um, because I'm building a chronology of history about this to the best of my ability to show not just those two sides, but everything. Um, the the peripheral um, story, the history around the, the, you know, the context of the town, why it would have been reported on like this. So it's really interesting, I think, to consider that maybe there uh, is an idea to help show that something happened and that's much later on um, with the use of technology um, that kind of gets into stuff that like Shane said earlier about the UFO hunters and all of that. So um, fast forwarding through a lot of that, I just wanted to mention that with that family coming on board in the forties and using the well to drink, um, you know, some of the, the old timers at that point into the fifties, the and into the 60s, um, there was sort of uh, rumors that people from early aspects of intelligence agencies, because as you guys know, and, and for many who don't, after 40 or in, in 47, actually, you know, soon after the Roswell incident um, and all of this in that year, um, you have all of these different alphabet agencies come into being, um, intelligence gathering agencies that are highly compartmentalized. It makes you wonder maybe if if there's just some weird coincidence <laughs> that it all happened right there but i don't think so i think it was all very well set forward um and orchestrated to to be so and so i think that because of that um it's interesting to consider that there are rumors that in the 50s government agents came into aurora 
interrogating locals and residents, asking for any artifacts, debris, metal, weird things from that time frame, um, and telling people to sort of be quiet about it. Um, and so that to me kind of corresponds with these ideas that you hear about other UFO encounters, crashes, um, you know, experiencers being interrogated, uh, intimidated. It's actually illegal to intimidate witnesses, um, you know, in a court of law, that's like something that could, uh, you know, actually throw out a whole case. And so I think that you see a lot of these things happen in a way that is not um, actually constitutionally legal. And so if in the event that any of these people actually were harassed, um, that would, and, and had things taken from them, then that's really curious. But into the sixties, you have writers and reporters of those newspapers who were interested in digging back into the, um, the archives and finding old fun stories to report back on or to check back and following up on. And so you had people do that. Um, and talking into what at that point would be the old timers, uh, the old timers there in Aurora would have been in their fifties, sixties, seventies, and eighties. Um, and they would tell about the whole history of that strange incident, whether it happened or it was just a, a hoax. Um, and again, uh, when this came back into public knowledge, um, it exploded. And the interesting thing in my view is, is that at the end of the 60s into the 70s, um, not only you had Project Blue Book with the Air Force, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, the civilian astronomer um, component to the military's investigation into the UFO phenomenon, helped to try to establish a, a, you know, a direction for this for people to understand. And what people I think don't realize is that Hynek knew about Aurora. Hynek told Jacques Vallée about Aurora. Jacques Vallée wrote about Aurora probably earlier than anyone um, uh, in, a, in this publication since. And so you can see how in many of these different aspects, um, this was a case that had been tried to make sense of uh, for years. And so people went into Aurora in the late 60s, early 70s, 1970, 1971, and started digging back up some of these old ideas, talking to locals, going back to that property, going to that well, going to the gravesite, and really started to get the attention of uh, what were, you know, at the time newly called UFO hunters, UFO investigators. So Jim Mars, who I mentioned earlier, he was around at the time. He was very interested in this. He went out there on the scene. There was an aviation writer for the same newspaper that wrote the original article, the Dallas Morning News. His name was Bill Case. He was also the director for MUFON there in Texas. He went out with MUFON. There was a guy named Hayden Hughes who came out with the now defunct International UFO Bureau from Oklahoma, and they launched a very thorough investigation of the entire case and its history, as well as an attempt to legally exhume the alleged grave there in the cemetery, um, and and really do so like in full prowess. And there were people descending upon the town. Um, it was a nightmare for the residents, and there were treasure hunters coming to try to figure out what that metal was and all of it. And so. Um, people came out with radiation readers and Geiger counters. And actually, I think that um, it's really interesting to see that we still do these things now. Um, that's a lot of what people are trying to use to try to see if there are any trace remains um, and field effects of you know, being in close with the proximity with UAP. So ever since 71, while these people came out, the following year in 72, um, it garnered enough attention that the Cemetery Association threatened with a counter lawsuit saying that if anyone came digging, that they would be sued. 
Um, they didn't want to dig up grandma and, or bring any diseases back. Um, and they didn't want anything to do with these people coming in and trying to find treasure or aliens or UFOs. Um, and so it was a big sort of disorderly thing that they tried to um, put a seal on. And so they said, we're going to have a cemetery watch, shut down the cemetery for two weeks. And so unfortunately, the the challenge with this now is that the headstone that was in place. And if you'd like to, um, I know we've got a few different uh, images here. We can pull up that image that Jim gave me of when he was there. The original headstone was what Jim called this broken Yeah, let stone. me pull it up here. <laughs> As you I can just want to hop on real quick and yep. make sure Chase heard that it's illegal to dig up the grave. Do you know what? <laughs> of frogs? What? Uh, do you know what number um, it is? Daniel, the one you're looking for. Let me see here. Uh, let's see. Is that it? Three or four. I think before that one. Yeah, it okay. should be before that one. Let me get our names out here. Okay. We got Brawley. Oh yeah, we can we can check out that one as well. But this is. Here, look, the do you want to just start headstone. from? Do you want to just start from the beginning and because it'll, it'll be like a few of them in. Sure. Yeah, we can just go back really quick and I'll just know, uh, do a little narration here. So that's the original article. That's what I had. I was holding up. That's kind of the cropped version. It tells about the whole story, the crash, the occupant, the writing, and the planned burial the next day. And from there, we can, we can keep going from that one into the, the next few pictures. Okay. This is the location of the windmill, the water tower, and the well. Obviously, it's non-existent today. Um, for a long time, the naysayers, the debunkers said, well, this guy Proctor never had a windmill. Um, well, they found the base for it right there, and there is a well. And it's covered up now. It was sealed up um, in 57. Raleigh got tired of what was going on and we'll talk about that here in a moment the, that uh oats family brawley oats and his family drank from that well right they took all that debris out of the well you can see that kind of patchy spot in front of the fence there um just below where that like truck is that's where the well is in 57 the oats family sealed that well back up because they were not having a good time and we'll talk about why here so in that, a moment. We'll, we'll so keep that, that wood piles where where the well is to the in the center of the image, there's sort of a barren spot. That is where the well, oh, the okay. water tower, and the windmill would have been. Gotcha. I was looking at that little wood pile in the back by that fence, but so that's the cemetery. That's uh, as you can see, established in 1861. Um, that's just, that sign is still there, and um, again, it's anyone can go there. It's not like on private property or anything. Um, I guess it is private property, it's city property, but you can still go there and it's still uh, in, in use. It's an active cemetery. Um, but moving on from this one, we'll see there in the cemetery, just not even a mile down the road from that crash site, is the location of the grave. And this picture is the picture that Jim gave me of the original headstone. It's blown up there so you can see it's hard to make out, but there's like a sideways V etched in on that stone. Jim thought that that stone was broken in half and that that had been there in place from when it all happened. Um, that's the idea. Maybe someone put it in, in there earlier 
uh, or later, maybe in the you know, 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, but they think that it was there since it all happened um, and that it was a full stone and that at some point someone broke some off and that if you consider that, that sideways V completed with like a symmetrical other part to that rock, it would have made for a was full shape Zahid that maybe looks like... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe he's got it in some secret bunker. Maybe it's under the Vatican, who knows. But if you put another half to that picture, Jim thought it made for a full UFO. Um, it looks like it could have been the shape of the craft or something like that. So that's a curiosity. Kind of fast forwarding, um, that was 71, 72. And then right after the cemetery watch, um, which I think was in May of 72, um, the headstone went missing and Jim asked Bill Case, that guy, what do you think happened? Uh, and there were drill marks in the hole, three drill holes. Um, he said he thought the government did it. And so that, that headstone had been missing ever since the seventies. So that's, uh, I've had people tell me they know where it is. Um, and all these really interesting things, but it's that original one has been gone since that all happened. Um, and so some people consider that the government came in and dug the body up, took some core samples, or some people even suggest that the original had been moved by the locals to, to protect it. Um, all these different interesting anecdotal stories, right? So a few years um, of this, you know, this idea of the investigations leading up to this cemetery watch and the stone gone missing, Brawley Oates finally came forward and said, you know what? Um, I'm having a bad time. My health has gone downhill. I have really bad arthritis. His body has these really big um, forms of arthritis, these maladies. Oh, and he damn. said this. Yeah, he said it's all because he drank that water that was poisoned by that alien and his spaceship crash. Um, and so I don't know that there are any medical records to substantiate those claims, but that's what he said. Is there anything um, that causes really that, like arthritis or something that would could naturally cause what that is? I mean, that looks, that's brutal. Yeah, and I don't think that he was the only one. (laughs) I do think, um, from what I understand, that his children also had similar effects, but this was the only known photo to have existed. Um, And I don't know if there are any more out there that someone might have, but I'm open, and I, I, I would say this for anyone who's listening who comes upon this either who's listening live right now or plays it back at some point in time. If you ever feel like you have anything to contribute to this story, the Aurora legend, I'd be glad to connect with you because there are so many loose ends and and really interesting parts of this history that I think are still out there um, that I'm really excited to maybe see how this can reach you and uh, you know, that we can get in in touch because the Oates family's I think still around um, Brawley Oates has passed away, but he's, he said that in 73, which is the year after the cemetery watch. And a few years after that, um, uh, this, this lady, Rosalie Gregg, who founded the Wise County Historical um, Society and the museum, which I frequent now quite often, um, she submitted an official uh, statement to be uh, basically engraved upon a historical marker and it was approved. And so now uh, in the next picture, you'll see the official Texas Historical Commission marker, which tells about a little bit of the history of Aurora as, uh, as well as the 
whole if you case want to, itself. Uh, it says, if you want to get uh, in touch with Daniel, too, his website's um, at the bottom. Uh, so just reach out to him on one of his social media pages or I'm sure his email's on there. Uh, but, yeah, because you, you were mentioning some, you know, if somebody had more info on uh, that guy. Yeah, or any of this. So um, that would be great. Thanks for that, Mike. And uh, this historical marker is still there. It's really cool to go. And if you want to check it out, take a picture with it. Um, there's a lot of history there. But there in the middle, it might be hard to read, but uh, I've you know, seen this several times. It says, this site is also well known because of the legend of a spaceship that crashed and the pilot of which was buried here in the cemetery. Um, and there aren't really any historical markers that say anything like that um, outside of maybe something that could be found uh, nearby in Roswell, where Toby is, or in other places uh, that might have something similar. But this is kind of an interesting Texas marker. It's an official marker that talks about a spaceship and a pilot from 1897. Uh, and that's pretty interesting. So that's in, uh, that was erected in 1976. And so from that point on, it was almost in every single major newspaper, people were writing stories about the Aurora Spaceman, the Aurora Spaceship, um, the alien, the Aurora crash, um, and how maybe that, depending on how the article was being written, that there was hope that they would find something. And so the metal that was analyzed uh, was tested. Um, and that this idea that it just uh, is a nuisance and that people in the town don't want anything to do with it. Um, so this is where I found in that Wise County Heritage Museum founded by Rosalie Gregg, um, basically that they have all of these old news clippings. It's really cool, but many of them are from all over, not just in Texas, but from like virtually every major newspaper at the time in the 70s was talking about this and that's why i think this is so interesting because it to me um it parallels roswell um and, and its uh notoriety because you know there are a lot of really interesting ufo cases but there are not a lot of ufo cases that are written about to the extent of roswell and now what i think looking at all of this probably aurora um i think it's without a doubt in my mind that aurora is probably the most well-known most publicized airship mystery. Um, but it's not only that, it's probably one of the most notarized um, or publicized UFO stories ever. Uh, after looking at all these historical uh, newspapers and archives, um, there are just dozens from completely independent newspapers of each other um, and they would carry stories. So I think this is incredible because throughout the 70s, it gets so much attention um, that people, you know, that that were involved with those UFO investigations early on find out that there were metal um, bits and, and parts found that tried to get tested. Um, and so it's really interesting to see that some of those came back from different uh, labs. And one of them was done in the University of North Texas up in Denton, where Chase is. And they found out that some of the metal had zinc and aluminum. The curious thing about that is that aluminum, while it was in existence, um, it was not widely available. And it's really odd to think that it would have been there in Aurora, Texas. Uh, it's not impossible, but it's just weird to consider that somehow there was high traces of aluminum in this metal. Um, so it got enough attention that a few years after that historical marker, actually eight, uh, 10 years exactly, um, that there was a movie made about it. And I think that's the next picture we can get into as well. 
Oh yeah, that's uh, that's the um, the blown up part right there. As you can see, it talks about the spaceship that crashed and uh, the pilot, which was killed, is buried here. So that's there. I think it's really interesting. Uh, you can go take a picture with it. We'll all go out there and uh, have some fun. Um, and so, yeah, there is the cover for the movie that came out called Aurora Encounter. Now, this was a fun movie that sort of tried to ride the, uh, the coattails of the success of E.T., which, you know, is a friendly alien movie. So that's kind of the same theme that this one takes. But instead of the alien dying in a crash, um, it comes out of the spaceship and interacts with the townsfolk. Um, and the really interesting thing about this movie is, is that the alien was played by a boy named Mickey Hayes, who had progeria. And uh, so he's sort of deformed. He looks a little different. And his Make-A-Wish um, was to play in a Hollywood movie. So some people think, why did they make that little boy do that and play that part? Well, it was his uh, whole like Make-A-Wish Foundation thing to play the alien in this movie. And that's really cool. Um, Jack Elam is in there. And a uh, really campy movie, um, some weird stuff that goes on. But it makes for a fun uh, watch at least once. Um, and they have to wrap up the movie. So, uh, he doesn't leave. Um, they have to kill the alien somehow. Um, and so there's a, uh, <laughs> this is kind of funny, but there's a rogue Texas Ranger who comes in, um, and basically has to, um, stop the, uh, this whole thing because he's heard about the airship that's going around these towns and he's been sent out to investigate. So he's like a UFO investigator, <laughs> you know, and um, this Texas Ranger, and he's been sent out to um, pretty much thwart the uh, the invasion. And whenever this little alien comes out and is like nice to the kids, they're playing with him. He's he's a uh, you know a joy for the townsfolk. Um, you know, spoiler alert here. So if you don't want to know or find out, just you know, put this on mute, but um, he comes to the town uh, more than once. He actually lands and like goes in and out, but uh, he finally, um, he comes up to Jack Elam, who's like the town rogue and a drunk. Um, and he's like playing checkers in his own shack with himself, um, going from one side of the board to the other. And then in the doorway is standing this little alien and he like kind of grabs his gun and he like stops him from shooting him. So he's got these special powers um, and then finally he comes back to town and, uh, whenever he's like landing and getting out and walking up to the townsfolk, the, uh, the UFO investigator, <laughs> I guess you could say the Texas Ranger just, uh, shoots him and he doesn't die immediately. He kind of stumbles back into his spaceship, which starts to kind of take off, but doesn't do too well and just crashes and explodes. And the little kids just scream and, uh, that's how they end the movie. They had to find, like, find a way to kill him. So, yeah, that's that's a Aurora encounter. Daniel just gave away the entire plot to Walker, Texas Ranger, everybody. <laughs> it's a yeah, it's, spoiler alert. It's great. If, if you haven't seen this movie, <laughs> you're never going to. So I love the artwork. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I don't know. I mean, it's fun. How old is it, though? You said E.T.? Like, so what? Early it's 1986. 80s. 86. Okay, yeah, that might. I mean, let's be honest here. How is it? Is it rough to watch, or is it good? I would say it's not even like a B film. It's probably like a C film. Okay. Um, it's it's pretty funny. It's like, you know, it tries to be a good movie, 
and I just like that a movie was made about it. So we'll just okay. say that. <laughs> Is it Shots fired? Can, can you find it like online or like can people watch this thing on like YouTube? It's all or... over YouTube, right? Okay. Yep, it's it's there. Okay. And I did find I, I never planned on this, but I did find this VHS in the wild at a store here locally, and I never thought that I would find it. I was never planning on it, um, but I did, and uh, it was very synchronous. And uh, that was a treasured moment that I have. I have the, the VHS to Aurora Encounter. And mm-hmm. I have a, a theatrical release movie poster that Mickey Hayes, the alien, the boy who played it, signed. So pretty cool. All right. Let's move on to the next one here. Okay. So... Um, before we get to this part, I'll, uh, I'll take it like veer off into a different direction for a moment because sure. um, what's really important to note about this is this is the cover to a documentary that Jim Mars put together that later on I helped him with uh, in a sort of a reproduction of it. But in the 90s, um, that was kind of a, a, a downtime up until 90. 90- Three ninety four. Jim came out with that book that I pulled up earlier, Alien Agenda, and it was reproduced, uh, republished in ninety seven for a few reasons. So, the way I'll kind of transition to this is kind of veering back off into Roswell. So I know that some of you guys will know, and people listening might not, but Toby, I think, will. Um, in relation to Roswell, let's see a little bit of a trivia here for you, Toby. What is the significance of 1997 for Roswell? You're really going to put me on the spot? <laughs> Don't think too hard on this one. It has more to do with, with time, a time frame than with like a technical question, I guess. So. Okay, so that'd be what, 50 years? That's it, yep. The 50th anniversary was 1997. And because Oof. of this... Oh, it was close. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> My so, brain malfunctioned. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, so people were really into UFOs at this time. Maybe even, I mean, in, in, in league with today. I would say that, you know, today we probably have way more people, so there's more people um, by proxy. But ufology was really big in the 90s Um, what's really interesting is that a lot of people were interested in roswell you had a lot of those big events 1997 the 50th anniversary was a huge deal for roswell and and ufos in general so what's really cool is that there were a lot of books written and so we can transition back over to the cameras for a moment i want to show you guys a few things that i think are pretty neat um that i'm going to display over here for a moment um i'll try to do this pretty easily after that, so I mentioned I this one earlier. Question for you. Cool. So this is that book, um, Alien Agenda. This was reproduced in '97, and so I'm going to kind of run through a few of these here, so you guys can so check it out. Is Shane asleep, sitting up? Oh wow. <laughs> okay, never mind. So sorry, guys. In, I thought we're, I was looking down and, uh, and talking to somebody on the chat in here. Oh, they're yeah. making fun of me the space camp pancakes name <laughs> i just noticed that too thanks for that yeah that's did you just notice that <laughs> you fell asleep live on air folks shane <laughs> i just wanted to say thanks to everybody that's joining us and ones interacting in chat S- screen name everybody except for chase 
I'm not thanking you, Chase. Everybody else, thank you. <laughs> All right, Daniel, real fast, awesome. real fast. To get you, you back trivia-wise, what year did the Roswell made-for-TV UFO movie come out? The one with Martin Sheen. Damn it. <laughs> 1994. He knows everything. He knows everyone. You Paul can't Davids. stump the man. <laughs> What's really cool about this is it coincides with the release of Don Schmidt and Kevin Randall's book, The Truth About Roswell, which is also the, one of the helpful parts to making this movie. Um, 94 was also when Jim wrote and uh, helped to get out uh, Alien Agenda. So it's really cool is that, like you said, this movie is probably one of the best movies on this subject. Um, it's called Roswell, the UFO cover-up. Um, Paul Davids gave the 25th anniversary talk about this at the Roswell Festival a few years ago. And then this book has undergone several different publications. This is the 1994 version. Um, and so what's really interesting is that that movie, I think, helped, like you say, you know, because of this uh, movie, it helped to bring it back into public awareness. And so in 97, for the 100th anniversary, or 50th anniversary, um, the, you know, the people always talk about the, the idea of the cover-up, the different explanations, the ideas that maybe the government and military has put forward about Roswell being like the, the weather balloon, right? The, the crash test dummies, Project Mogul, um, and all of these things. Well, in 97, they thought, okay, this is it. Roswell, case closed. <laughs> so they came out. This is the uh, official U.S. government report on the Roswell report right here, headquarters by United States Air Force. And um, people, this was like laughable when it came out, it was a joke. Um, they really thought like, they're just gonna title up in this simple story and people won't question it at all. They'll just be like, okay, case closed. So that's funny to think that they came out with that. But um, consequently- Didn't have a press conference too with like a really arrogant, uh, I don't know if he was a Lieutenant or what, but he came out on stage and was kind of laughing about the whole thing. and. I know it yeah, kind of you know, a lot of people. Right. And so that's when things like really start to shake the whole community again. And that's also the same year that Colonel Corso wrote his uh, The Day After Roswell, which is kind of a very controversial book and person. Um, a very well-known book in regards to Roswell. That's why I have it here. Um, and there are a few other things there as well, because we've also got, this is a really cool addition here, the 50th anniversary of the crash at Corona. This is a Stanton Friedman book. Um, and that's, people often kind of forget that it wasn't in Roswell. It was outside of Roswell, a few hours in Corona. And the Roswell Army Airfield was where they originally took a lot of the stuff to try to make sense of it later. The interesting thing about Roswell is that, and in the tie to Fort Worth and possibly the proximity to Aurora, is that Fort Worth and the Carswell Army Airfield um, here in Fort Worth is actually one of the locations that they took some, at least some portion of the debris from the wreckage. It's where they hold up those famous aluminum tinfoil looking uh, photos. Um, you have the Ramey memo, you have um, all these different things going on to make people think it was just a weather balloon. You have the press conference for people saying that it was just a, a top secret weather balloon. So that's really interesting to consider you know, uh, that whole idea of the, the crash there, as well as you've got this really cool um, set of different books here. I'll just kind of run through because I, I want to touch base on how this is relevant to where we've gone today with different things going on. Um, there's all this big 
talk about not just the crash, but the bodies, right? So Philip Mantle is a you know, researcher, publisher. Um, he wrote this book called The Alien Autopsy, Roswell Alien Autopsy, edited by my good friend, Noy Torres, who had been involved with the Roswell Festival for a number of years, has written on it as well. Um, and I just wanted to say that he's written an excellent guide to coordinates and all this stuff there. People are really curious if footage like this is real, if there is not just fake footage, but real footage that had been used in place of yeah, I think some everybody's of the seen there. those pictures circulating like online or used in thumbnails or whatever, you know, like that those pictures, there's like a handful of them that have been recycled a ton. People think they're real, at least people I see commenting on, you know, yeah. Facebook stuff. I don't I don't know, man. I don't I don't believe any you know me, I'm a little bit more skeptical, but I don't know, does anybody in here believe any of those pictures are real? I don't know. I don't know, but I know Mike doesn't know. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> I know, but... I know Mike doesn't believe in Bigfoot, but I know Bigfoot believes in Mike. That's all, all right. I got. Okay, <laughs> just to interject. We just can do that interject. at the end. Let's do that at the end. Let's stay on, let's stay on focus here. Does anybody believe in those? Have, has anybody in this... I'm skeptical, but I don't know. You know, I need a little more, um, a little more than just photos. But have again, you ever seen a photo, any of you, that of what you thought was a real one? That's like that's legit. That could be real. Of an autopsy are, or are, yeah, any of like an alien. About, are we talking about Ray Santilli and the alien autopsy? Not even just he, any specific. Just no, any that's already alien. admitted though, isn't? Just any alien Yeah, but he, he presented what he said was a legitimate slide. I think he showed it to Alejandro Rojas, who released it. So, and I'll just mention this because I'm uh, flipping through pages here. Uh, this is a still from the one of Santilli's films. And so that one of the big premises of this book and some like this is that, yes, we know that there is fake autopsy film. Um, but the whole concept is that interspliced between that is film or footage from a real autopsy event that either took place in Fort Worth, which again pops up several times in this book. Um, so it was, whether it was fake or real, there were autopsy films made in Fort Worth, um, whether they were intended to be real or not. So to your question, Mike, at least my answer would be that having seen the footage um, in its various forms, I don't know um, if it was real or, or fake, but I do know that at least some portions were fake, if not all of it, right? But if the idea that's been put forward in something like what Philip Mantle is suggesting, that there could be some real footage spliced in between some of the film cells of a real autopsy of a real extraterrestrial. And I think that's incredible. If that is the case, then we've probably all seen it, not knowing it under the suspicion that it's all fake. And I think that's incredible and it's unfortunate that maybe we'll never really know um, that that's what this, for, put, uh, this book puts forward is that some of those autopsy films might actually have some gems of truth and real footage. And it's used as a more sub, uh, subliminal effect rather than just like outright, the whole thing's real, you know, so. So what do you mean, a, like some sort of that like what you conditioning, like, hey, Let's splice this in. They'll get a glimpse of this thing, and then eventually, ev through evolution or whatever, it'll become part of your subconscious. Therefore, subjecting people to more of a leak-style disclosure or ready for contact type of thing. Or well, wasn't wasn't the whole story that he was actually given the original film, and it had degraded so much that he couldn't use it 
So they refilmed or recreated the parts of the film that were damaged so much that they couldn't show them and they spliced the real footage in between. That's my understanding. Right. And I think it's a combination of both of those things, what you guys just said. And I wonder kind of the effectiveness that it's had, because obviously it's kind of like within the mythos of ufology at this point, it's not like a really well-known thing. Um, you know, if you say Santilli, it's either you know who someone saying that is talking about, or you have no idea. And some people might have seen pictures like this on the internet at one point, maybe never if they don't know what they're looking for. Um, and the challenge is, is that if that was the case to try to be sort of a, um, you know, way for people to have something to, to digest mentally, visually, that this is real, um, it may not have been as effective as they hoped. And maybe it wasn't supposed to be. Uh, and so I think that it's just a, it's a challenge for us to make sense of now. Um, because again, that's, that's almost 25 or what, 20, a little over 27 or so years ago. Right. So it's just one of those challenges that we think about. Um, if there was something that was real in there, does that footage still exist? Is it still around for us to try to make sense of now? And I, I don't know. So um, we can try to do our best to try to say, if we ever watched it, maybe we did see something. Um, maybe we could just go watch those videos again and try to find where those frames are. So Phillips tried to do this with this book. Um, so I would try to say something to that effect. I will share two, um, two other books and a really cool one I think is important. Um, so this one, let me fix the mic real quick. All right, sorry about that. Here we go. So this one Thanks. I think Michael enjoyed as well is the Roswell Conspiracy by my good friend Nick Redfern. So Nick has put forward this idea that not only is there um, a sort of stack of conspiracies that have been put forward by the government to dissuade people from the reality. It's just an, another uh, look at maybe trying to make sense of the obfuscation, suggesting that Maybe it's not even that the reality is UFOs and aliens. It's that it was something more sinister and nefarious being done through a government operation on real people. Um, and that's something that this book touches upon. And this came out in 2017, but this is a really interesting book that my buddy Nick put together and it says exposing a shocking and sinister speak. So I just wanted to mention this is a really interesting book. There's Nick. You guys have probably seen him or heard from him on um, a few different shows and things, but really cool guy. Um, he's also going to be one of our speakers here at our event, the Texas UFO convention next weekend, but we can mention a little bit more on that later. And I'll just read, because this is very controversial already, but he says the bodies, the Roswell bodies, they weren't aliens. One survived the crash, a very highly classified experiment of the army or Navy, the planned use of propaganda. So this kind of gets into some really controversial stuff. Um, but the, one of the highlights, I think, and there are so many books, and I'm just bringing some that uh, I thought were notable that I have in my own collection, but um, so many books on Roswell. This one, I think, is a gem because it's uh, this is the 75th anniversary edition of Tom Carey and Don Schmidt's Witness to Roswell. This is like a staple in the Roswell mythology um, and history, really, because it's not just mythology. This is, this is very factually based about a really challenging issue in our history. And it says, Unmasking the Government's Biggest Cover-Up. Um, really cool edition here. I got this um, 75th anniversary, of course, 
at the anniversary event a few months back and um, they've done some monumental work there. They're always a part of the Roswell event and Tom Carey just announced that he's done, he's retired, he's not doing any more. Um, and I just wanna say probably one of the most valuable things that I have here in my collection is this cool item right here. And I think that uh, Toby might <laughs> recognize There we go, there we go, Daniel. All right. <laughs> so big shout one. out to- Shane doesn't have one. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've got I've got some uh, pretty cool stuff here, but this like you know takes the cake. This is the 75th anniversary Roswell incident special publication, um, and it's cool because it has the incident logo here on the front. Um, it's got a lot of cool ads. It says out of this world. I wonder what terrible person on Twitter uses that logo. I've never seen that before. <laughs> So um, I just wanted to say that you know, what it. you guys are doing <laughs> is uh, it's was really it awesome. Eric? Um, <laughs> yeah, it was Eric. That's so cool and, that you uh, have what's that. Cool uh, shout out to Lou Eric. Elizondo. I actually sent Lou Elizondo a copy of that, along with some 1947 uh, front page reproductions. He told me he hung them up in his office. I don't know if that's true or not, but it was nice to hear. And just to just to show you guys how cool the uh, RDR Roswell Daily Records event, the Roswell incident is, is and I attended this. Um, this is the flyer here. You've got a lot of the speakers, um, and they put together an awesome event. Um, and I just want to say that it's it's just great to have you guys all, you know, holding it down to be a part of this historic involvement. Um, what you guys are doing, I think, is a big part of this contribution. And so I just want to say, like, I when I'm there, I always try to find something like this. Because to me, I love this history. I love that it's continued with what you guys are doing and, and putting your own time into making sure that people can um, know about this. So that's really awesome. I wanted to mention that, that this is a big part of it. Roswell is a household name and i think people ought to uh they deserve to know the people who are helping to make this um more aware made more aware through like the work you guys are doing so a uh, big props to you of course um, i just want to kind of show some of that cool roswell stuff and and then we can get back on track <laughs> yeah, well, thanks, man. well i tell you what i tell you what next year we're gonna be having our event june 30th to july 2nd Come to the office. I will hook you up with a ton of Roswell Daily Record, Roswell Incident stuff. Hey, by the way, I wanted to say, too, that one of my favorite people in the world works at the Roswell Daily Record. Please tell Eric I miss talking to him, Toby. Yeah, shout out to Eric. Uh, no, actually, shout out to the Roswell Daily Record, and uh, shout out to Eric. And uh, yeah. yeah, they do a lot for us, so I appreciate it. And, guys, if you get a chance, check out their merch store. And if you also get a chance, this is an Opus shirt. Uh, Chase will probably put that somewhere. Uh, Wounded Warrior merch too. You can go, all those support these organizations. I have the That's link for uh, Wounded Warrior down below. Uh, again, actually, um, can you uh, can you link up vettix.org too? Um, yeah, I'll put that in there. We have UFO Expo coming in March, which is a huge event. I don't know if you've seen the website yet, Daniel. You're going to be here with us, obviously. Um, so psyched! It's a film festival. There's food. There's music. There's bars. There's everything's going on they have speakers they have me shane and mike are going to be on stage for some reason i don't know why i'm dancing but it it should be a really good time Speak and through the yourselves. end of the month you can get early bird tickets for 79.99 um 
but Tom Reed actually donated four tickets to veterans. So four tickets are going to be made available on vettix.org. All because Shane asked, because everybody knows he's a veteran and we thank him for his service and we thank all the other veterans, but you guys should come out and join us. It's going to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, so. and that's, that's really awesome. I'm looking forward to it. And again, it's thanks to veterans, Shane and many other people, especially the Marcel family who, you know, uh, Major Marcel uh, was a, a big part about how we know anything about the Roswell story. And I think it's really important that we um, honor their contributions to all of this as well. And um, I found one more thing I was going to show. This is a really cool mug I got at the event. Um, let me see if you guys can see that there. So it's a little Roswell little cup oh, yeah. here, like a thermal cup. But it's not just the cup, it's what's in here. This was gifted to me by a man named Frank Kimmler. Is a geologist and a professor at the military academy there in Roswell, and this is. Let's see if you guys can see it. Ground up alien Kindler. testicles. Oh, it's dirt from the crash. Oh, dirt from the Roswell cool. crash. That's awesome. I'm super psyched about getting there, especially. It's going to be kind of like a UFO Twitter meetup. We're kind of going to be. Toby should be on that shit, right, Toby? Toby. <laughs> No, uh, yeah, we're gonna actually gonna have a spot for UFO Twitter to meet up. We're gonna be doing an experiencer panel that's gonna be broadcast live on KGRA, as far as I know. Um, speaking of shout outs to veterans, Kai's at the chat. Thank you for your service. Um, yeah, it, it should be a good time, and you already know Daniel Allen Jones will be there, he's everywhere. <laughs> I, I drove to Clovis today, and I swear I saw him at the zoo. I swear. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. Talk, Agent Smith or Daniel, whatever. Talking to Daniels, it's it's always so much fun. Just because you could you can change the topic, like I do with my ADHD, and he still does. it doesn't matter to him because he knows most of the you know the facts about all this, and it's so much fun in spaces with him and and in here with him too. Mike, on the other hand, I could do without you in here, but you know you got to make do sometimes, bro. You know the funny <laughs> thing is, you could no, oh, no, it's funny. I'm the only one that actually has to be in here, actually, to be honest. But yeah, yeah, for real, he does. Uh, this thing wouldn't happen without him. No, so he carries the back. Anybody can do what I do. I'm just saying. Right now, I do hold the keys, though. So, <laughs> right. he keeps us in line. Yeah. Toby um, smacks us well, around. I just to say, uh, violent. Yeah, thanks for that. Really appreciate your praise, Shane. It's always great. Um, and I'm just, I'm interested. I'm curious, like a lot of you guys. And to me, it's a, it's an honor to be able to connect with all of you, whether it's on a show like we're doing here, whether it's on Spaces or UFO Twitter or any other, you know, um, things online or better yet in person. So I'm looking forward to actually when we can all meet together. Um, and uh, that's going to be awesome. So what we're talking about is a good event about- to them, so. Why don't you talk about Whoa. Texas UFO Con? The Roswell Daily Record recently announced we're sponsors on it. Um, Daniel's going to be appearing there. It's going to be super cool, except for Chase being there eating frogs. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's a first time inaugural event happening next weekend, actually. And so I know that's very sudden notice for a lot of people, but there is a live stream option, which is very affordable. And it's going to be myself. I'm going to be the master of ceremony as well as a, a one of the guest speakers along with my good friend, Nick Redfern. 
um, who's going to be speaking on some interesting angles to the Cash Landrum incident. Uh, and uh, we've got my, uh, my buddy Smoz Lewis, who he uh, was the curator for the archive, uh, the Anomaly Archives, as well as UFO Jane, who you guys might know from Twitter and Texas UFOs um, and the Weird UFO Show. And, and a lot of these different cool um, things that we hear about and see online, this is a good way for people to learn um, what it's like to see these people in action, in person, um, and there's going to be other people as well. So I'm really looking forward to it. Um, it's going to be in Jefferson, Texas, where we hold some other events. But again, you can do the live stream, and that's going to be a great way to kind of see what's going on um, with some people. I mean, Nick's been around. He's been to a lot of events. He's been at the Roswell uh, event before, but you know he's probably the most well-known out of all of the people who are going to be there. Um, but sometimes it's good to see some of the names that people don't recognize so much so you can learn about other, um, you know, contributors to this meaningful body uh, of research and of work being done by people like yourselves and those who are trying to make sense of otherwise really interesting, um, you know, uh, phenomena. So, yeah, that's going to be on Saturday the 19th. You can go check out Texas UFO Con. Um, it's on Facebook. I've shared about it on my social media and I'd be glad to meet anyone there or to hope to have you tune into the live stream and uh, we can you know provide some information on that as well so thanks for that what event what event there are you looking forward to the most or speaker or whatever himself oh, obviously <laughs> well i i'm looking forward to the anniversary i mean there's a lot i, I love all kinds of different things and, and i know that this theme that we're getting into the subject matter of being Aurora um, is a big focus that I've had for a while. Um, and, and I love it, but I, and as you've mentioned, Shane, I, I'm involved with a lot of other areas that get my attention. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that I'm hoping to be able to make it back out to, especially for next year. But the Aurora anniversary is something that I hope um, we can pull something together between the Roswell Daily Record um, and hold another commemorative anniversary event. Um, because that's going to be when I have my official release for the book that chronicles the history of the legend and how it's kind of been, uh, you know, involved throughout the years up until today. Um, and this show is going to be included in that because anything that mentions the Roswell uh, or uh, the Aurora story in any way, whether it's a you know, all about it or just kind of has something to do with relating airship cases or just historic ufology, um, I'm including. And I'm trying to, you know, pinpoint how people can use it as a resource with references and, and all of that. And so you guys are going to be part of that um, because you're you're a part of helping to get that information out there. And so I think it's awesome. Um, so April 17th, 2023. Um, it's going to be the 126th anniversary, so I'm looking forward to that. There's a lot of other events, and so I'm always open to whatever's happening, see if I can make it out there. And, uh, you know, it's always great to be able to get together. Um, and, you know, uh, there's a few other things. I think if we have some time, we can kind of run through and kind of get back uh, to just yeah, finish so up. Maybe this this means stuff. Let's get back to the uh, slides here. I think we were on – let me pull up here. It was the title to – Title screen to Jim's duck. Yeah. All right. So the reason I want to kind of go uh, into this is because to me, yeah, just a few before and then we'll, we'll be good because I'll talk about all of these as well, which um, to me is really important to see why something like this uh, is important because this documentary that he came out with was after 
the um, you know, 50th anniversary of Roswell, UFOs really become a little bit more mainstream. A lot of people are into it. And not only is it the 50th of Roswell, it's the 100th anniversary of the Aurora case. So similarly, there was a lot of publicity for Aurora. And in Texas, a lot of the news stations at the time were reporting on it. Jim came out and there were specials being done on Fox and all these other um, news stations. And so that was really cool. So he decided, well, there's still some people alive. There's still some people around. Let's put together a documentary. So he did. And there is the name of it, Aurora, the UFO crash of 1897. And so that was made a few years later in 2002, after he finally got everything together and finished for it. Um, he pretty much made it on his own um, with a few helpers. And, uh, and so uh, we got to work a few things out later on, but I just wanted to mention this and we can keep going after this one. Um, in about 2005, John Greenwald of the Black Vault, which some of you guys may know, um, he's the one who has submitted a lot of FOIA requests. When he first started working for uh, the History Channel, they asked him to produce his first ever documentary, which he'd never done before. So he did one on Aurora. And they tried to go and go to the original sites and they got to go to a few places, but they would not let them uncover that well. The well had a sort of um, uh, a well covering a house, a little uh, like, part over it that was sealed and the History Channel just couldn't get permission to be able to open it up in time for John Greenwald's documentary on the Aurora legend. Uh, and so because that got a lot of attention in 2005, a few years later, they had a new show out called The UFO Hunters, the History Channel, Bill Burns, um, Pat Uskert, and they had a lot of different things that they covered in the first season. And in the second season, um, a guy who I got to know and work with um, from about 2010 to 2013 or 14, uh, his name was Ken Cherry, and he was the Texas State Director for MUFON for uh, about 15 years. And he uh, actually helped, he investigated the Stephenville UFO case here in Stephenville, Texas back in 2008 as well. But because of that, he talked with the History Channel and Bill Burns and all these guys to come out and do a show an episode on Aurora, which they did. They came out, they finally got permission to uncover that well, to unseal it. They sent Pat Uskert down in like a scuba suit to go see if there was anything still in that well. Unfortunately, they didn't find any metal, but they found a snake that somehow kind of fell in there. Um, they let that go. I thought it'd been cool to maybe test the snake, see if it had any like radioactive qualities or anything like that. But um, no real substantial findings there in the well, but they did find um, traces of molten metal embedded in the ground and in trees. And then they went to the grave site, which is what you see here. Jim took this picture. This is ground penetrating radar being done over the grave site uh, there in the Aurora Cemetery. And they found what basically was a small child-sized grave there under the ground, but they couldn't tell what the contents of that grave actually was. So there's something there. And they found that there was a base for the windmill um, they found metal pings from metal doing metal detecting, um, like somehow in a molten state embedded in the trees. So something seems to have exploded. And I think that it's a challenge for us to really know what took place because of it being, uh, you know, over a hundred years ago now, but there definitely seems to be more credence for something having had happened after this revelation, when they made the detections of molten alloy, 
uh, embedded into the ground and into the trees of the surrounding area, as well as the detection of a small child-sized grave there at the cemetery. The interesting connection between the, the grave site being a small child-sized grave that coincides with Roswell, as Toby and you guys may know, is that that was one of the requests sent out uh, and through uh, the mortician and Glenn Dennis, who was uh, you know, asked to make small child-sized coffins or caskets after this crash happened that they needed very quickly. So that's pretty curious. Um, so it's really interesting to see that 50 years before Roswell, the same thing kind of had to happen. And uh, so they maybe had to throw together a makeshift child's coffin for something that maybe was small enough to fit inside. Uh, and that's really curious to me that if there is anything in there, uh, after over 100 years, is there anything still um, you know, feasible to utilize? Has it decomposed? Uh, can it decompose? Like, what even is it, right? We don't know if, it's, if it is alien. Could it have some kind of different, um, you know, half-life or decomposition quality than regular organic, earthly material? Uh, and so that's really interesting to me. So I've found that um, that's one of the more substantial ideas behind the claims that something did happen is what the UFO hunters were able to detect there in 2008. And a few years after that um, is when I really got involved because, uh, again, you know, at the time I really uh, I was you know, interested in some of these things, but really didn't find out until a little bit later on really what was going on. In about 2011, a mock stone was made and put into place that has a little bit of that same spaceship looking at etching or engraving on the stone. Now, mind you, this is not the original headstone. This is one that was put in place sort of as just a, a placeholder. And in fact, the Roswell uh, UFO, International UFO Museum, uh, has a section that they dedicate to different, um, you know, forms of historical encounters. And the Aurora case is, uh, does have an exhibit, which is pretty cool, but they show this headstone, which even though it looks a bit archaic is actually not the original headstone. So I had to go and tell them, Hey, this is cool that you have this, but you probably need to know that this is not the original headstone. And I have a picture of the original headstone, which as you guys saw earlier, Jim Mars took and gave to me. So I'm kind of working with the museum to try to see if they can update their display and not maybe just replace this, but maybe in addition, help to, to note that this is the, uh, a much more modern stone that was put into place about 2011. Um, and unfortunately, that too went missing. <laughs> so that one's no longer there, um, but it was put in place in the same vicinity of the gravesite. But moving on from that, um, a few years after this, I got together with Jim and we went out there. There we are pretty much at the gravesite. And I was talking with him about the Ooh, possibility that beard. of... that <laughs> I thought that, <laughs> that was Jeremy Corbell. A, a few years back, a few more hairs. And uh, yeah, um, man, I miss my buddy. You know, he, uh, he was so cool and I really enjoyed our time together. Um, and back when I had a beard. <laughs> so uh, there we are at the gravesite talking about the possibility. And he would take me. He's the one who showed me. Um, he would tell me about the history and the, the whole story, you know. So I thought that was really great. Um, he lived just a few minutes away. So it was always fun to be able to get out there and, and just really take it all in. Um, and so we said, you know, uh, there's really a lot to this history that people don't know about and could really do good by finding out what's going on. So I said, why don't we go approach the city hall 
and see if they'd be open to the idea of doing an event. And so we did, um, and we happened to arrive when they were just ending a, a historical planning committee's meeting. And the cool thing about that was, is they, they had no real knowledge about uh, trying to do an event or do anything like a UFO conference. They didn't know anybody like this, um, but they were all for doing an event. So we started to plan, and in, the, in 2016, and as you can see on the next picture here, we held, with, in conjunction with the city, the first ever event that was called the Aurora Alien Encounter. And it was a cool conference. It, it was sold out. It had 400 people because that was how many people the building could possibly hold at its max occupancy. Um, and we, Jim was there. Um, we had a few other really great guests uh, who I mentioned earlier, Nick Redfern. He was one of the speakers as well as Tui Snyder, um, who I mentioned earlier, Noe Torres, and uh, another friend of ours, uh, Stephen Androsco. Um, as well as uh, we had Travis Walton, who told of his experiences seen in the movie Fire in the Sky. So we were all out there, and it was really cool. And I'm glad we got to do that event in 2016, because it's probably the, the first ever and only uh, ever conference, unless we can do something to maybe convince the city of doing it again. But there's been some really misfortunate events that have happened uh, in the last year there at the city because the city admin at the time of this taking place was all on board. She seemed really cool. She was all about the alien theme. She even had this little alien dummy who she called Ned because she, as a little girl growing up in Aurora, talked to the old timers and the guy who worked as a cemetery watch, um, his name was Ned, who would tell her and the other kids about the whole story. So she thought enough of it to um, eventually work there as the city administrator and she bought this little alien that she called Ned who sat in City Hall. People could come and visit, and she changed the city logo to the one that I'm wearing now, and was all about it. And so I thought that was pretty cool. She let me take Ned around, but I'll go to the next picture here to, to describe a few things that we're seeing here. This is Jim holding up that paper that I just showed you earlier that has the all all the um, original airship sightings on that Dallas Morning News with Aurora being in the middle. Um, really cool, and I've got all the videos from that event on the Vortex YouTube channel, which you guys can check out. I'm really glad to have Jim a part of this because he died, uh, unfortunately, passed away a year afterward. So um, it was really special, I think, to be able to have him come. And, he, and the big statement he made was, you know, for a long time, he wasn't really sure about the Aurora case. But after the new findings and what the UFO hunters showed up with, um, he always felt that there was something to it, but really wasn't quite sure. But he said that he thought that Aurora was the smoking gun of UFOs. So it's a pretty strong and bold statement to make, and I'm glad that someone did, and that he could do it. So, um, you know, I, I respect Jim for, for being able to, you know, put himself out there like that. And then, uh, so we can keep moving along with some of the pictures. Um, because of the success of that event, they were able to erect a monument with a new Silai City logo, um, with the spaceship crashing by the windmill. Um, and there's the little dummy, uh, town mascot there, uh, Ned, as he's called, um, and the subtitle, the little caption there under where it says Aurora is a legendary Western town. That's kind of what is on my shirt too. So that's really cool. Um, and so Ned I kind of placed inside the spaceship, but he comes out and uh, they don't really keep him there. I just did that for the picture, but anyone can go up there and take a picture of that. That's there at the crash site, um, which is cool that this town kind of up there, if you didn't know where you were going through, you drive right through it. It's such a small place. It has this monument dedicated to a UFO crash over 100 years ago, kind of like Roswell. So 
really cool that they did this. This was erected in 2017 and, and to uh, be moving along a few years after that, there's just been a few additions that they tried to come up with some pretty cool stuff. Uh, I took Ned around. Uh, the city admin at the time was gracious enough to let me take uh, Ned on tour. There you can see him reuniting with his family uh, there at the Roswell <laughs> Visitor Center. Um, it's really cool. Uh, I got Ned a wheelchair because, you know, he'd been in a bad wreck and he's never the same ever since. Um, but he liked to be wheeled around and he helped me uh, with the costume contest there in Waswell. He, he helped me uh, get the uh, judges award uh, for best performance. So hats off to you, Ned. Great job, buddy. Um, some unfortunate things that have happened as of late with Wouldn't Ned. Would you perform but I, uh, alien autopsy or something? Um, alien abduction. Yeah, I, uh, I was an intergalactic bounty hunter, uh, and the audience had some... Uh, there were some detections there that uh, there was a threat amongst the audience. And so I had Ned planted in the front row. So I jumped off stage and sort of broke the fourth wall and uh, uh, started wrestling with Ned, which, you know, people in the back, they can't see. They just think I'm like <laughs> tackling somebody. So I grabbed Ned, I jump back on stage and say, I got him. You're safe from now, humans. And uh, it, yeah, it was, it was great. Um, Josh Gates was the judge. Um, and uh, so I got, for whatever reason, featured on his Expedition Unknown Roswell episode for that. And uh, I thought that was kind of funny. But um, yeah, I so. I think I watched Ned's... that. I'd have, I'd have to go back and rewatch that now. If you're, you're, you're <laughs> so, in that, you're, you're in the episode. That was I think the year just we as a passing clip. That's yeah, so cool. Yeah. That the year he came out, um, he stopped by our event. Uh, he was actually the Grand Marshal of the UFO Parade. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, I uh, I do remember I was standing there. I've got a picture of myself um, with him, with Richard Dolan and Alejandro Rojas. And we were all in, uh, well, I was still in costume, basically. And, uh, and uh, my partner at the time, who she actually won best costume, because uh, it was like judges and then audience. And everyone gets to decide. So I won the judges' best performance. She won the... Um, audience's choice so it was really cool we got pictures with them and uh yeah it was it was amazing awesome parade we got to be on the parade there um so roswell has been like a staple in my eventing i always enjoy it and I, as you can see i love being able to take ned there and have a part where you know he's now connecting with something i think that's still um, a big part of history when it comes to ufos and uh so i'd like to tie that in and include it that uh, that as you can see he's got the same shirt i have on but a purple one. And I would tell people, yeah, he's, he crashed in Aurora and all this. And then people would be like, Oh yeah, it's that one where he, you know, ran into the windmill and he's, they buried him. So it, it like helped kind of put Aurora back on the map a little bit for some people that had known about it um, or never really heard about it either. So that was a lot of fun. Um, that was about 2017. And then, um, after this one, let's see, uh, in 2018, Oh, and by the way, we tried to hold another UFO event uh, there in Aurora, but Jim passed away and it just didn't have the logistics in the city. So it kind of went through, but I decided to hold a meetup. Um, and in 2018, this was uh, one of the shots I had there at the monument, the crash site. And, uh, and I, so I, I gave a tour and I, I had this one guy come out, a lawyer from Dallas who offered a reward for the whereabouts 
or the actual original headstone, um, the gravestone that when we looked at the very beginning, he's offering like a $5,000 reward for anyone that can turn up that headstone um, or knows where it is. So that's really interesting that that's out there. Um, but we had a lot of people come out for that. It's like a hundred All the people. other stuff that you see at the end of Indiana Jones when they're wheeling it into the warehouse with all the other crazy artifacts. <laughs> it's in there. I hope so. I hope it's not just like a bunch it's in of hanger one. pebbles now. <laughs> yeah, somebody ran over it with a lawnmower. <laughs> Knowing their situation out there, I wouldn't be surprised if someone just is like using it as a doorstop or something, you know, just totally not having any idea what it actually is. It's just some rock. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that was a really cool meetup that we had. Um, and then after this one, let's see, what do we have? Uh, there's Ned at his own grave site. Um, I know it's kind of morbid. That's on the anniversary. There he is in his wheelchair. Um, doesn't talk much these days, you know, after the wreck isn't really a, say a whole lot. Um, but I uh, always enjoyyed being able to kind of I'm getting a weekend go out there on the anniversary. Getting a weekend at Ned's vibe here. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. If he's at his own gravesite, he's dead, right? Yeah, I mean, I always like to say, like, Ned, he lets me borrow his cool space shoes, his, like, moon boots sometimes. Um, but it's not like he's going to ever need them again. So, you know, um, just don't tell him I said that. Uh, but Ned's a great guy. Doesn't say a whole lot. But there he is at his own grave um on his own it's not really his birthday but it's kind of like his death day i guess so um pretty historic i guess and then from there uh, i think the following one is they erected a what they called a party patio which they called area 114 because it's off of highway 114 uh which is right next to the, it's actually kind of connected to the crash site in the monument uh, um, apparently that's where you get margaritas folks well, you could. You were able to for a short time up until very recently. There's been some troubles, um, more calamity <laughs> in Aurora. And unfortunately, um, this was a cool place and they had a live a stage for live music. They had Martian margaritas. They had smoking windmill barbecue, you know, because the windmill, you know, crashed uh, or they, you know, they crashed in the windmill and all that. So pretty clever ways to kind of play and tie into the theme. Uh, Martian Margaritas was a lot of fun because they came out with their own alien-themed beer called Alien Ale, which you'll see in this next picture. Um, and that was a limited run. There's, uh, yeah, there's Martian Margaritas logo, and then you can see Smoking Windmill Barbecue, which is pretty cool um, that that was like a real thing that they did. And there's the beer, really cool. I uh, managed to keep some of those just, uh, you know, because I try to get everything I can at Aurora, um, anything to do with Aurora, basically. And those are kind of like some of the mementos that I thought were really uh, going to be kind of nostalgic to have after they aren't ever made again. And unfortunately, there's some reasons why that won't ever be made again. But um, moving along after this one, it's kind of coming up into the more recent times. There I am last year at the the new grave site, it's kind of hard to see in this picture. But as of 2015, there's a very big round boulder. That's the very top of it. Um, 2015, the city admin put into place a very big stone because the old ones kept getting stolen. This one's still there. It's there today. And just to it's put got you a lot in of the mood, Daniel's, you know, the grave sites, there's a bunch of like trinkets people are putting on there. 
And Daniel looks like he um, is in the show Westworld, but the future part of it, that's how he dresses. So he is very stylish, very futuristic. He looks like he's coming from the future into the past to see where the first UFO landed. This is this is the scene, folks, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, so this is actually um, a photograph by a local Spectrum news reporter who contacted me because um, in May of last year, if you guys remember, in June of last year, the UAP task force, the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force in Congress, had to submit a report and all this stuff. They came out with what was called the preliminary assessment. And this is where everything's been taken off in more recent times, right? And so the interesting thing is, is that they wanted to do a report about the upcoming release because this was back in May, the month prior to that. And they said, do you know of anywhere that might be relevant to do this? And I was like, I think I know a place. So we went out to Aurora and the guy had no idea that Aurora had a story about this or anything. So he was like, wow, this is perfect. And so we did a whole news segment um, there at the crash site and there at the grave site. And he kind of tied in the story and it made the news. And I thought it was just going to be local, but Spectrum News repeats stories all over. And so it got, um, you know, aired all over the place. Anyone that had Spectrum News probably saw it. And so I thought that was really cool. Um, and that is the the thing that people leave all these weird trinkets and like things that are totally irrelevant um, <laughs> all over the place on that, that big stone now. And that's what we'll see when we go there. And so that was last year. Um, and so now coming up, uh, unfortunately, um, we can go to the next one here. So this next one is what is covering the well today. Um, this picture was taken earlier this year. As you can see, a slab of like a particle board with some rocks <laughs> and like a gate to a chain link fence just covering it up, you know, and so there's really not a lot there. It's, it's, it's accessible, but it's on private property. So no one's really allowed to do that, but I had to. Um, so that's what it looks like. I mean, this historic site where a UFO crashed, right? That's pretty much all it is um, other than the monument. And so that's what's left of it. Um, and so to tell you guys about the tragic news is that the city admin who I worked with to get that event going and all of that, who was really cool, or it seemed like, she actually turned out to be like a, a pretty big criminal who was stealing lots of money. Um, and she burned down the city hall. And um, I think Ned was inside. So Ned is no more as far as I can tell. Um, so now he's been wow. in two tragedies. She probably, stole, she probably stole him too before she... Uh torch the place i hope so life. i just hope that maybe there was this kind of weird inner monologue between ned and her like just like don't do it or I, or i could see a sad scene where like daniel shows up at the fire and the fireman's like walking out and he's got a piece of uh he's got a piece of dead with him and daniel just lowers his head and starts to sob it's like it's happened all over again <laughs> They're just pieces. They were so badly disfigured, but enough of Ned was recovered, you know? Um, so I've taken it upon myself to kind of throw together a mock, a mock up Ned. I don't know if, if I'll call him Ned, but um, yeah, I have something new I've That's kind of thrown you. together for our vid. That's what we this is me. Create an AI <laughs> call, and call it Ned and then put an alien. This is the kind of situation that Go, GoFundMe exists for, Ned. <laughs> So, um, uh, Jim always kind of like Lex Friedman build a real robot 
called Ned, and we'll <laughs> we'll put an alien gray shell on him. Jim thought um, Ned should stand for Near Earth Denizen. Um, he liked that idea. He thought it was kind of funny. Um, and so, yeah, I don't have Ned anymore. He wasn't mine. He was the city's. He was like the mascot. So I just got to take him on tour, right? So this is me at the cemetery on the anniversary, on the 120th anniversary, April 17th of earlier this year. I did a whole live stream event. You can watch that on the Vortex. I go to all the sites. I did some metal detecting over the grave site. I did some radioactive um, or radiation detecting over the well, um, just to go out there and just to, you know, do something I think that's not really ever done anymore. And uh, it's just uh, one of the places I like to go to because I don't live too far away um, and hope that we can get out there here at some point. Um, so that was just earlier this year. And now I'm going to break to you the news. I think that's the last, uh, we got um, one more and I'll, I'll show you guys, this is a pretty cool piece of art, if I do say so myself. I threw together this digital piece of artwork um, as a dramatic depiction of uh, the the crash. Um, it's kind of cut off there. I'm not sure if you can pull it down, but there you can see the airship there on the left, the windmill there on the right, um, the smoky explosion. Um, at the bottom is actually kind of where the, the action's happening. Um, can we, is there any way to to pan down or to bring that one up. There it is. <laughs> um, this is the cover to the book. The, um, the subtitle up there is to show that it's Aurora, but that's, that's going to be different. But that's the art that I put together. And that is Ned. I kind of uh, used a little bit of Ned um, to help make this possible. I turned him green to help with that like little green men trope because they, they said he was a Martian. Um, he's got his papers there in his hand, his disembodied hand. Um, and he's just, he's not doing good. He blew up, you know, and his ship is on fire, exploded. That water tower is just, you know, bubbling. It's just uh, exploding. There's that well on the right side, um, and Ned's dead. Um, he perished. So it's a really dramatic depiction. And um, so I've got prints of these. This is going to be the book cover. I've got one here, and I'll just uh, we can snap back over to the cams for a moment, or I guess for the remainder of our, our segment, because that's my last one. I wanted to show you guys what they look like. Here's a, a print that I made. Um, and I hope to get like a full movie poster because it's made to be like a movie poster. If you guys can see here, like there's Ned, it's holographic. So, you know, it's, it's a really interesting kind of way this is depicted. There's his papers right here. Um, I think, yeah, there you can see he's like holding his papers um, with his hieroglyphics, the airship, all that. So I've got a lot of these if you guys are interested. Um, Screen name just commented and uh, it said it looks like Ned is smoking somebody's fart on the thing what that was doing a handstand <laughs> what, what i thought said. you know he could be let's hold on hold that thing up again i gotta see this let's see if i can see it, what he's talking about <laughs> daniel if you give me a framed one like that dude we'll display it at the roswell daily record i promise you oh i mean i can oh, kinda, it kind of looks like there is a pipe hanging out of his mouth because of the crash the way it's like lined up i guess i don't know this handstand oh, yeah. thing though Maybe that's why he crashed. Mike, come on. I mean, you know, 
<laughs> we don't really know why he crashed. We just know that he did, but yeah. maybe there's something to it, you know? Chase is very excited good, by good that, eye. too. Good that, 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 it, that looks like a frog to him, I think. Everything looks it like is, a frog. It is very, has that green frog yeah. uh, hue to him, right? So it's a... Uh, so, yeah um no that that's got, is, dude uh, that that's some bad that actually is badass heart though i mean i uh do you did you made that on the computer obviously but do you do a lot of that or just you know i i'm a i'm a musician so that's kind of my main like art that i do is music and things like that but as far as physical and graphic art i love drawing i love the idea of painting i love digital art i like photoshop i don't do it as much as i probably would like to but this is like something I felt, okay, I, I had visualized this in my mind. I knew what I, I was um, conceiving. Kind of psychedelic, like, like dark psychedelic in a way. I wanted I like to make it. it more photorealistic rather than cartoonish. So it's yeah, supposed no, to it look very, um, you know, real. It reminds me of a comic uh, book or like a comic book or something like that. Yeah, like a graphic. Like a estimate of the situation? Kind of. Yeah. And... Um, and so these are really um, just a way for me to have a very dramatic depiction of, of the what was purported in the original story, right? So there's a few things I want to mention to kind of um, put a, uh, you know, a conclusion to the whole idea of the story. It's not really a conclusion. It's just like we know that it's going to keep going on as far as we can share and everything. But I will say this is that as of last year, um, and I mentioned that Tony, uh, the city admin, she unfortunately seems like she burned the city hall down. <laughs> um, she was one of the financial backers and owners of Martian Margaritas. So the, the, the county seized that party patio. Smoking Windmill Barbecue had to move down the street. Martian Margaritas is no more. Um, that party patio is up for auction. Unless there's a big financial backer who's willing to put it back in operation, it could be scrapped. Um, however... Uh, Smoking Windmill Barbecue is really cool, and they're uh, really interested. They just erected a windmill by their sign, you know, because they're still about all about the theme. Um, and and so I've been kind of uh, just keeping up with them because that's kind of about the only other business or anything that has anything to do with the whole story or have any relation to it now, right? So I've been kind of trying to keep up to date with anything that includes it. So any anything that we've done, like the podcast that we've done before, Mike, with your other show, Mind Escape, the spaces that we have on Twitter. Yeah, man, you got bumps up I got, in and everything. You got had, bro. Randall Carlson had you. You were the longest Mind Escape episode of all time, and then Randall Carlson just came in and go, "No, I'm doing 30 seconds more." <laughs> uh, before, actually, before <laughs> well, that, Dan, for, Dan, for, you you unseated Dan Freeman, so he's still uh, bitter about that. But this is the longest episode of Roswell UFO Symposium so far, so you have that record. Well, I think that, um, you know, for anyone who does end up being able to get through all of this, I, I would just say again, like, I'm really honored to be able to have anything to do with um, this story, the Aurora legend, and anything to do with this stuff. So I'm, I'm really interested in connecting with anyone who has something like to share about Aurora, who has any involvement, where, where they came into knowing about the story, all of that stuff. Because again, this, this book that I'm putting together that I'm going to have a hard official release on the anniversary of next year is all about chronicling the history of not just the original story, but like how it's been embedded in media throughout all the years and everything. So this is a part of that. And I'm, I'm honored to be able to share that with you guys and have you guys a part of it as well, um, because it's historic. And that's why I think it's very similar to Roswell 
And one thing I want to mention, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it has something to do with this, is because as you guys know, this is a little bit personal to us, but for anyone who's not familiar, there's a really cool um, thing that we do on Spaces, on Twitter Spaces, where we have these remote viewing sessions. And now this sounds a little bit wild for some people, but what's really cool is remote viewing is a way for people to try to uh, interpret and to perceive objects, items, places, things, people, or anything like this remotely by utilizing their mind's eye to envision whatever the coordinates or the destination or the place is, right? Some people think it's similar to astral projection, but there's a lot of different ways that people interpret what's happening and how they receive information. The reason I'm bringing this up is not only do we have really cool spaces where we practice this remote viewing, but I wanted to mention that my buddy Jim Mars, he wrote a book called Psy Spies about the government's remote viewing programs, the Psy Spies, the Psychic Spies, right? And so it's a really cool but very short book. It's not really even that long um, that he put together and it's got some great information. When I worked with Jim, we went to a lot of events and I helped him at his table and his presentations and all of his media stuff. Um, and so I have a ton of these books that I inherited after his passing, and I think that they ought to go to people who are interested. So I want to make sure that, um, that that happens because Jim would want these to be with people who are interested in that. So I have a ton of them, and I only mention this also because I think it would be interesting if we tried to do a collective remote viewing um, practice or exercise and seeing what's in that grave. We need to try to figure out what's going on without being invasive or trying to actually go in and physically dig it up um, because even though that you know people can eventually you know wonder how to do that i think we could do so uh, through non-invasive means maybe by controlled remote viewing and figure out maybe yeah, what we I'm are in. perceiving down there i've never done it so before. we can make it happen i see you guys do the that spaces. might be pretty interesting shout out to astral uh the astral he does those spaces but uh i would do it for the first time on that you you know concentrate all my powers and really get in there and tell you what's what's down at the bottom i hope I, so, so. I, I think that would be a lot of fun and just two more things i'll show you guys uh, uh head over here it's pretty cool at one point this these are non-existent now they no longer ex exist but uh i've got two little um, novelty items from when aurora was kind of a you know making these but this one might be hard for you guys to see water is that from the whale this is alien water from the well. It says water extracted from the original well site source from the famous 1897 spaceship crash. Um, it also says, it. do it looks... not consume, not intended for potable use. <laughs> it, it looks so pretty clear. We don't it looks want it... too clear. I don't know if I believe that. Right. <laughs> and the... Bottle Same water. thing on this one. Oh, here we go. This one is, as you can see, crash dirt. This one has a little baggie of um, crash site dirt. It's cool. I mean, I, I don't think, I mean, some people might have these around from when these were out, but very few people. Um, and it's got like the, the fold over, this little like cardboard fold over is actually. Chase said um, when you meet up next, article. bring it, he'll drink it and then stream it. You'll, you'll blow up oh, on the vortex because it would be like uh, Howard Carter opening King Tut's vault. <laughs> Oh yeah, it'll be like you know in those um, sarcophagus um, open when they were trying to open the sarcophagus and they found like the the liquid. People, people like had a whole thing once <laughs> to drink it. That's so. Oh cool. yeah, the curse shit. No, no, there's a. Um, they found a sarcophagus. And Daniel's talking about like uh, last year, I think they found a sarcophagus that 
there was like a bunch of water in the bottom and people signed a petition like they wanted to drink that water um oh yeah i remember reading about that yeah. that sounds like something chase would do <laughs> so it's a good segue I mean, we that, that we i was gonna say that's a good segue too if you go to the roswell daily record merch show, store we are selling some of toby's bath water it's on discount right now <laughs> we tell shane's but there's too much poop in it yo i'm gonna throw up <laughs> this is what happens when we allow them to talk all right back to the adults daniel go ahead sorry. so maybe they um you know, those original guys out there on the scene in Brazel's field where the wreckage was, they saw those aliens and they were sad because they crashed and they came up and they bottled his tears up because he was sad. So got some alien tears bottled up maybe somewhere in, in Toby's dungeon. We'll see. Um, maybe throw that on the merch store. Um, but yeah, you know, I would say hazard to anyone um, who tries to drink this, you might end up like Brawley Oats and become radioactive and big hands and yeah, Brawley wind up on the Avengers yeah, or something. Yeah, those, those that's were... wild. His hands just—they look crazy. I mean, I mean that—that that has to be. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would—I thought possibly arthritis, but looks like you're punching Colossus. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't look like it was any good for him. Um, but you know, it's hard to say like how that happened to him, but. Um, you know, he he said that it was because of that well water that they drank in that alien spaceship and the crash poisoned. But he was the water full, like once he started like a little bit of it, wasn't he like? Wouldn't you have thought like maybe I shouldn't be drinking this? Yeah, uh, twelve years of drinking. <laughs> well was, was his hot? Was his options back then bottled water, perhaps? No, I My understand. Mean, no, no, it was kind of limited. I understand. Was I'd go to the next die, well, probably. though. I'm just saying. I just what if there was somebody's somebody's like, well. there's an alien that landed there, and then something weird started to grow in my hand. I'd be like, all right, I got to move to the next well here. I can't be listen to this city slicker. <laughs> this city slicker over here. I can't wait till Sasquatch has you in his grasp. All right. So what? Sorry. According to him, Sasquatch isn't real. So sorry, I'm skeptical of Sasquatch, and I would you wait not you wait. drink the alien well water. Rangers. I don't know what you want. I promise you the hickeys Sasquatch is going to leave you, Mike, will be real. I mean, if it's a baby Squatch, I know it's Shane in a costume, so just know that. So if it's a five-foot Squatch. That is facts. That is facts. I was on Chupacabra's back. Hey, actually, real quick, Daniel, what are the dates for this conference coming up? Uh, well, this one actually is going to be next weekend on the 19th. And I always say that because it's such short notice for most people that probably aren't local, uh, go check out the live stream. It's a really cool and affordable option to watch everything that you would see here in person. Um, and it's the Texas U of O convention. It's the first kind, um, first of its kind. You know, it's probably going to be an annual event that we're going to establish. And uh, this first one is really all Texas based. So I would say for anyone interested, you can go check out Texas UFO Con. Um, on all social media you know it's probably something you can pull up on eventbrite to get your um, registration and all that but if you're interested feel free to reach out to me um or any of these guys we can get you guys connected with the right information but yeah i mean um that's kind of the next event uh that i'm going to be doing uh, there's maybe a few more toward the end of the year and then next year i'm really looking forward to both roswell events that's really cool to say because it's always just been the one right or the the kind of 
main event with everything going on. But now we've got the, the UFP, uh, UFO Expo, right? So I'm looking forward to being able to see all of you guys there in person um, and everyone else. So that's going to be a fun one. Yeah, it's uh, like you said, you uh, Texas UFO Con, Roswell Daily Records a sponsor. And now going forward, Texas UFO Con is going to be a sponsor of the Roswell Incident, June 30th to July 2nd. Uh, me and the guys, all four of us actually that are on here, will be live in Roswell next March, the 10th through the 12th. VIP mixer, celebrity guests, movies. Mike laughs because he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. You know. I'm just reading the live chat comments. Sorry. Yeah, Jamie said that perhaps screen, screen name's a funny guy. What I mean, what can I say? No, well, Jamie had mentioned that perhaps the alien that crashed in Aurora drank, or maybe it was alien bong water the guy was drinking, and that's what messed his hand. <laughs> Vinegar bong I hope that's water. what this okay. is. Hey, I was actually that's thinking about coming down to that. I was thinking about making that conference. You know, I got some time, maybe catch a train, something slow, get down there. But then I realized, wait, there ain't no weed down there. I don't know if I can make it down there. Pick me up on the way, bro. I got you. It's I ain't rampant. Joe Rogan, man. It's like wildfire. That put me in jail. I will say the irony is that I saw Joe Rogan here in Fort Worth on 420 earlier this year. And that was wild. Was he on HG? It's everywhere, Shane. It's everywhere. Really? They have weed everywhere there? Didn't they? I did saw. I thought, though, didn't they just vote to decriminalize? I saw something. Something about it. Yeah, I hope so. Well, um, I'm saying you know, it, I, I only mention that because, like, if you go to Florida and you get caught with weed, you might as well have got caught with pounds of heroin. That's why I, I assume Texas and they were interchangeable. Oh, yeah. It's a federal crime in Texas, right? Yeah. This is a family show, uh, Shane. What the hell? <laughs> it's definitely not that. Can't stop talking it's about weed, Mike. No, I, it's I was for, about it's to give a shout out to my granddaughter. Then Shane does this. Udacity, Don't do weed, granddaughter. I love you, baby. Grandpa's proud of you. And ignore these crazy guys talking about whatever they're talking about. Mainly this dude this way. If I can point the right way. Oh. Yeah, you need that I'm with the stupid shirt. The guy with the crazy eyes. On. You need an I'm, I'm with stupid <laughs> shirt. <laughs> Daniel's got one with arrows down and Dovey's got one with arrows to the side. Um, no, we'll, we'll try yeah, this. Uh, you will... It's these lights. Come, these lights get my eyes. We'll have, okay, Chase and Daniel are driving an RV to Roswell in March, supposedly. I don't know if anybody's going to actually let Chase drive an RV, but that's what he says. <laughs> so why not come down, um, pick me and Shane up for next weekend? And is we'll Chase going to gonna drive it like he drives days? cars on Fortnite and just flip them around? And... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he even has his driver's license in real life. <laughs> hey, don't make fun of people like that. Without the driver's license, Chase okay, may be Sh hurting. You know, Shane maybe have a driver's maybe license. Chase caught a case for smuggling frogs. You don't know. Yeah, Shane, know. <laughs> Shane doesn't have a driver's license apparently. So, all right. Um, got some more I don't need one. Bro, I got a wife. All right. So. Wow! Wow! Let's do this. Let's plug everything. I hope she smacks you. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you deserve that, Shane. Um, so, but everybody, I, I think, you know, if you aren't familiar, you should make yourself familiar with Daniel's YouTube channel, The Vortex. He goes around to all these events, interviews people. He's got Graham Hancock on there, who's got an excellent series out called Ancient Apocalypse. Just hit Netflix. Who won't talk to me. 
Uh, everybody check that out as well. But uh, yeah, Daniel's channel, The Vortex. He's got UFO people, uh, cryptid people, you name it. Tons of different ranges of fringes and science and all sorts of stuff on there. So go check out The Vortex. I have the link down to his website below. Um, as he mentioned, the um, you know the book on Aurora, which I, you should probably see what you said next year on the anniversary and uh yeah i mean i I really really love daniel's opinions he's also if you're interested in in listening to more beyond this episode he's been on mind escape a couple times recently uh which were fantastic episodes as usual actually that one we did on top five ancient sites is probably one of my favorite episodes that i've done recently so uh everybody go check that out and uh yeah if you want to support the Roswell UFO Symposium. I have the link tree link down below. Uh, you can follow us on all social media platforms. Um, also, the easiest way to support the show is just go to uh, YouTube, subscribe, like. If you're watching us on Spotify or listening to us on Spotify, please leave us a nice review. And if you're listening to us on Apple or any other audio platforms, please just you know give us a nice review or, or listen to our stuff. We appreciate it. And uh, yeah, that's all I've got. Everybody. Uh, Everybody good? Anybody have anything else to add before we wrap it up? Here? I just want to thank everybody that came and watched us live. This in the chat. Jamie, screen name, Chase, Tara, Toby. Well, actually, you should have been doing the show, Toby, so you, you shouldn't have been in there. That's terrible. <laughs> so, uh, everybody else, Daniel, I'm glad you're here. I enjoy. I always enjoy talking to you. This is fun. Um, I, real quick, I just wanted to plug Opus, UAP Med. If you get a chance, I actually I, now today's the first day I feel better and I can actually talk without coughing. I have to do a video for about my PTSD for UAP Med, and then we're going to start doing some other videos, trying to get other people talking about the subject too. So, plug both those Wounded Warrior Home Base. Shout out to all my people. Make sure you check out my OnlyFans. It's only my elbow, but trying to raise money for Mike. I appreciate all you guys. What a goofball, folks! But uh, listen, we love everybody, and yeah, That's Wounded Warrior wounded warrior uh link down below and as well as all the other links so daniel's links and i'll just links. say go ahead oh yeah i was gonna say i mean i really appreciate being here with all of you guys um you know it's always a good time in whatever format we're in um you know i love you guys this is the closest i'll be so let's 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 uh pull it in wait wait this side there we go here we go down here all right what do we oh other way Wait, not your elbow, elbow, Shane. Nobody wants your elbow. That's my elbow. elbow that's my only fans elbow. Let me give you the other one. There, the one yeah, there you go. <laughs> that was great. Um, but this yeah, reminds no. me of what? That's, that was the closest you've ever what? been. What? What is it? What was it remind you? <laughs> you know, this reminds me of. Yeah, remind I, well, you interrupted me so rudely. I was going to say. Every time we, we do this and it, we're having a good time and stuff, I just can't stop. And I, I, I sit there and look at these different photos, and all I can think is, what's that old TV show, man? I got all these boxes around me, and that's all I think about. And then, uh, Mike, earlier, I appreciate you <laughs> trying to make bunch. me like, Thank you, Brady Bunch. I appreciate that. That's all I've been thinking about this whole time. And Mike's sending me terrible texts and stuff. It's going to hurt me. They were, they were bad. Why. They were bad. But seriously, but I tell you, you I will say this. I, I actually, I'm going to make it a point. I'm going to meet, uh, well, Roswell, obviously. Somewhere I plan on meeting, hopefully, Daniel sooner than that. Just because this community, hanging out with some of you guys in person, it, it's got to be way better. I mean, shit, just, I just went to watch, watch Corey Feldman with Tupacabra. I mean, it's just so much fun. I mean, especially talking aliens, which we were. But 
Yeah, I want Shane's yeah, we role. I want Shane's role in this podcast. <laughs> I, yeah. Shane was like, Mike, Toby, I can't take <laughs> you with me, but you guys. Hey, you guys do the working. podcast without me. I'm going to I'm going to a concert. <laughs> yes, yeah, I've never I'll met report. someone that's been to this many events in their in my life, but it's, we love you. It's all good. It, uh, well, you guys were next time, me earlier, but how do you think they afford it? Only next fans. Time, <laughs> next time, get Corey on, and we'll we'll, we'll be good. Um. No, but seriously, uh, thank you so much, Daniel, and obviously your wealth of knowledge. I always love talking to you. Um, you're you're open minded, but you're real. You're not gonna like fluff it up, you know, like some of these people do, or take it to crazy town. So uh, I appreciate that about you. Um, and yeah, uh, again, check out uh, Daniel's webpage or um, uh, YouTube channel, The Vortex. Please leave us some nice reviews. We'd really appreciate it. And uh, also check out Mind Escape. I just had Randall Carlson on last week. He's also in episode eight of uh, Grammy Hancock's new show, Ancient Apocalypse. So go check that out and listen. We love everybody. Stay safe out there. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace.